0: Hey, we don't serve their kind here. What? your joints They left the wait outside. We don't want them.
1: Welcome to the Vintage Rebellion Podcast, I'm Richard Hutchinson and I'm your host for episode 100, celebrating the big 100. Well guys, 100 eh, so joining me as always is Peter Davis, good evening Pete.
2: I cannot believe Richard we have made it to 100 episodes.
1: I know, all these milestones that we did, the 25, the 50.
2: No, I don't mean that, I mean the fact that you know we've fallen out with each other, we try tried to kill each other, we've thrown each other off cliffs, I mean, Absolutely. you know, I can't believe we've even made it physically
1: <laughs> that's true as well
3: next on the list is andy spoons norton good evening andy evening richard and um congratulations i think you must have done
1: every one of those hundred episodes of you or, or bar one no i've done the lot i don't think i've missed a no. single one done the lot can we
3: also, can we also uh, commiserate with the listeners that have listened to every single one you know that's <laughs> a that's a, that's a decent Definitely. punishment for anyone, isn't it,
1: really? It's a big chunk
2: of their life. There. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, is it what anyone added it up? How
1: many hours we've done? Well, I thought you'd had all this planned.
2: Well, I kind of thought about
1: it, and <sighs> I just lost the water <laughs> <to live. laughs> Yeah, And it's good evening, Jason Smith.
2: Good evening, Rich.
0: Uh,
4: congratulations on the big 100.
1: Yes, it's great to get there. And next we have Andy Preston.
4: Good evening, Rich. Yes, I must have my congratulations, particularly you and Pete. You've been there all the way from the start. So uh, yeah, fantastic effort, guys. Um, as a long-time listener before I came on board the podcast, uh, it's been a sensational part of my collecting journey. It's introduced me to a lot of uh, new areas of collecting and a lot of information and uh, yeah, thoroughly d- enjoyed listening and now being a part
1: of it. What a bloody sad life you must leave, Andy. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, we know that already though. To <laughs> fair. Yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> You've got a loft full of tat
1: we've also got chris porteous on tonight as well so thanks for joining us chris
5: very happy to be here to celebrate a milestone that's made all the more preposterous by the average episode duration (laughs) and especially delighted to have mark daniels
1: on with tonight mark daniels has been a co-host on many of our shows and has been a frequent guest
6: good evening guys congratulations everybody
1: Thanks very much, Mark. Now, I did reach out to Grant, Jez, Ben, Sai, and many others. Um, and we were hoping to get another three or four of our old hosts on tonight, but sadly, uh, Jez has got COVID, uh, Grant and Stu had other things that they couldn't get out of, and same with Ben and Sai's had, uh, some, uh, family problems at the moment. So, thanks to everything that those guys have, have done, obviously everybody's chipped in over the years to make the Vintage Rebellion, um, what it was. So, we're going to do something different tonight we're not going to follow a usual format so there won't be quizzes there won't be um, anything you know of any of our regular shows um, but we've You got... mean
4: we've not got Jason's long long list of uh, co No that's through. going to make well, January even just, more uh, Well because
0: I, I don't really collect anything anymore
2: so Yes you do don't you lie there we, we saw you at Father's From
1: So guys what I've done is i put in the show notes uh, I think there are six or seven areas in there um for to have a, a round table chat on um and these are things that have been pretty big i think over the 100 episodes and uh, things we're going to look at so what I'm going to focus on first of all is how the Vintage Rebellion set up and um initially, you know, our early memories of the show, where expected it to go, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So episode one, which was Chewing a Wookiee, I mean, that was a long, long time ago now. It was, what, seven, eight years ago now, Pete, from memory. But I don't know if you can remember how the Vintage Rebellion first started. So my recollection of this Um, It was Jamie Brown, Fuzzy Buzzy Toys, originally originally on Stars From UK. He suggested um, putting a podcast out there, and um, myself and Grant in particular are avid listeners to the Kivecast, and and I still follow that show and love those shows. I think those guys are um, immense at what they do. And that didn't really go anywhere, and it was about another three months later that Stu had posted on there, and that became more serious. So initially it was myself, it was Pete, it was Stu, it was Grant, it was um, Tippy, remember him, Mark Aldaz? I think he does work on Jedi News now, um, where he um, reports from cons and does a bit of work on the literature side. Um and it was Ben and we were initially talking and then Jamie dipped in, dipped back out again. Mark Aldous couldn't take it any further forward. So we create we recorded our first show with an aim to get the runtime to about an hour and a half. Um now Pete, I don't know if you remember, can you remember that we had to scrap that first show completely? It was terrible. It was utterly terrible. The recording quality was terrible. We had hisses. We had background noises. We had the worst wooden performances all around. It was shockingly, shockingly bad. Uh, and there were people on stars from UK saying, uh, you know, it's a new episode. When's it coming? When's it coming? This went on for about three months or something, didn't it? Can you remember that, Pete?
2: Yeah, I mean, just to correct you, Richard, it it was remember it was a Star Wars Forum UK podcast. It wasn't the Vintage Rebellion, Mm -hmm. so we hadn't technically started the Vintage Rebellion podcast. But yeah, I mean, it it was because one, no one had really done a podcast before. I think I was possibly maybe you had actually done a podcast with someone else. I'd, I'd done this Breaking Bad and Walking Dead podcast with these guys in America. So, but only only as like a guest kind of thing. From yeah, the guy from Britain phoning in doing stupid things. But it was probably down to the fact that no one would have really understood how things like broadband worked when you were all on. I mean, you know, we're, we're going back eight years ago, 2014, which technology has moved on quite... Even in Britain, it's moved on significantly, so... Does that really still exist? I <laughs> was, sorry?
0: Does the recording still exist?
1: Ah, now, I've been Possibly. repeatedly asking Stu for this recording, and he's again, he's promised it for tomorrow, but he has all of the recordings it was dreadful cause, mm. because 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 we didn't really
2: understand how you know five was. What did we
1: use Skype? I can't remember. We did, we did use Skype, but it I was, was it was just so formulaic. It was unbelievable. We had no chemistry. We didn't really know each other. We it just became lists, and it just became you know monotonous. So when Stu listened to the first show, you, you, you could hear the despair in him, and he he said we had to re-record it. Um, and even the re-recording was still terrible. But they still had the sound problems. I remember the first did, episode. Did you would
0: not have any decent. Uh, microphones then either you'd have all just passed still i've
1: got them now <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh i don't know about that i think my microphone's pretty good but I, I i can remember slagging someone off <laughs> slagging someone off on the forum early on about i don't know he'd said something on the forum and i just went, went out he was somebody who was just buying everything off of the forum i've, I've still not late. forgiven you pete Well, yeah, well, you deserved
1: it. I mean, obviously, one of the big problems we had as well is getting launched on Apple because you just assumed you make a podcast, you stick it on Apple, bang, there you go, and it's nothing like that at all. And that must have taken another two months for Apple to pick up the feed and uh, we didn't really know much about RSS feeds, we didn't understand how to get things out. But... Obviously, the first show went out and we just sat and waited. We expected to have about what? We were hoping for 20 listeners, Pete, I think, from memory, 10 to 20. I think,
2: I think no, Richard, we were dreaming of, you know, speed boats being bought for us, <laughs> celebrity <laughs> engagements, all that sort of thing. Well, that's what we were hoping for. But, I mean, it, it's, I don't think we even – I thought – I, I, all I remember is that we wanted to do – if we could get an hour of talking, we, we were doing well mm-hmm. – and I think we aimed for like what was kind of like the normal show, maybe about an hour and a half, two hours, and that, that was that was our aim. I don't think we ever met that aim, did we?
1: No, we didn't. The first show was like four and a half hours or something ridiculous like and We made an apology and said no, no show after that would be that length. But I, I'm in, I'm intrigued to hear what the other guys thought of um, you know the idea, the concept of the podcast initially, and did anybody expect it? To, to, to work, because I certainly know from listening to all cast episodes, Ron Salvatore was initially the biggest, you're doing what? Who on earth's going to want to listen to that? You know, and obviously Ron listens to the show each month, um, I've got a nice recording of Ron coming up later on the show. Has anybody got any thoughts of that early show as if it was just a thing you want to check out or perhaps you never bother checking out? Uh, Jason, you're the only one that's on mute, so we might as well hear from you.
0: Yeah, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah so yeah, I, I remember tuning into the podcast from you know from, from the very early days when, when when it started and um yeah I'd never listened to a podcast before so um they, they were quite long but then I, I would use them to kind of fill journeys to and from farthest from and you know if I was if I was going somewhere or, or walking to work or whatever so I I'd kind of fit it in around my day and normally get through it in a couple of days and it kind of of became a big part of my collecting routine in the early days it was like you kind of oh you know we've we've listened to the show when's the next one coming out so yeah i was a big early follower
1: now spoons obviously you do a lot of car journeys um you you drive a lot did you have the same kind of introduction to jason because i think you are a podcast listener as well aren't you you listen to lots of different shows
3: i do yeah and, and and i struggle actually squeezing them all in so uh, so I listened to it from the start. I must confess, I can't, you know, I can't remember those, those early ones. But that's probably a positive. I don't remember them being terrible. You know, I'm sure, sure you guys were more critical of your efforts than probably our listeners were. Uh, but yeah, I used to have a, a regular four and a half hour journey from Sheffield to Salisbury that I did, maybe every other month. And that was always, um, you know, I might even save up a couple, one there, one back, but certainly uh, one journey would be uh, the Vintage Rebellion with me. But yeah, whether I'm commuting to work on my bike, driving in the car, I've always got a podcast on the go, and and quite often a Star Wars one, and very often, just purely because of the length, it was Vintage Rebellion.
1: Uh, Mark you were one of our earlier guests on the show before you became um a host um and we always enjoyed having the likes of yourself and Lee Bullock and other people who could come on and um, what was that
6: experience like for you was it was it a little bit surreal it, it was but then again you see I work from home and I work alone so i having a podcast on in the background is it's almost like working in an office you you, you have the conversation going on in the background so you can carry on doing your work and um it's almost like having your mates in the same room as you at the same time and it's just nice to hear the conversation sort of roll on i i, I really enjoyed them
1: yeah as a lot of people have said that mark i certainly know that when i've been in um oh the name guys the name, it's blake egerton i think from memory who used to have the the stall in london camden Um, and I think they moved to a little shop now and I I certainly was in his store one day and and he stopped me and he says you know are you rich from the podcast? I went yeah and he says come here and on his TV he had all the podcast episodes listed and he used to just put things on cycle because it was like background like music or entertainment for people in the shops and that's something that I just never thought would happen. I just thought everybody would just be like us and just plug it in, listen to it in your car journey and unplug it and that's it. But, you know, Dave Tree said the same as well. He sometimes plays it when he's in his shops or when people are in the shop and they're hearing stuff. Um, or Dave can play a little snippet of a, uh, oh, you know, even have Diecast, I'm going to put the episode of Spoons on and you hear about half an hour of Spoons if anybody wants to listen to it. And that's not something that we even dream would happen. Andy Preston, then, so what was your introduction to the podcast initially? Because you were quite quiet on Stores From UK, I think, in the early days. Yeah, I I came
4: late to the podcast, actually. I think my first experience with the podcast was uh, in the run-up to Celebration Europe 2016. So that must have been a couple of years after you guys started, actually. Wanting to find a little bit more about um, Celebration and uh, and what was going on and uh, and the vintage side of things. So I'd seen on SWF UK that there was this podcast, thought I'd better check that out. Downloaded the first episode. Was the first, No, not the first episode. The first one I listened to was your celebration preview. and enjoyed that and came along to the show and met you guys in person. And uh, fortunately, that didn't put me off too much. So uh, gradually went back, started at episode one. And I think I was doing some decorating at that time, painting and wallpapering and what have you, and uh, putting a lot of time in, in the house. And I just had the podcast in the background and uh, yeah, caught up reasonably quickly, if I remember rightly. But like I said before, so informative, so, so funny in parts, Uh, you know, it's always good to listen to. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed it, really uh, um, sort of got to, uh, uh, to participate, sort of sending in um, ideas and thoughts and responses. And um, I think you had me on a couple of times then. And uh, uh, yeah, rest is
1: history. Well, in the early days, certainly myself, Pete, you know, Stu, Grant, we were very much, in Ben as well, we were very much a case of this was going to be a UK podcast, nobody abroad is going to listen to this, they've got the Kivecast, they do their thing, you know, and I, and I, I loved it, I loved hearing the stories, um, but everything changed very, very quickly, and... I want to say it was possibly from the Bruce White interview. It may have been a little bit earlier than that when we started getting feedback from people in the States. And I thought, what on earth's going on here? Because at the time, I mean, Mark, Andy, Jason, you probably remember this quite well. There was very much a yeah, Stars for for UK versus Rebel Scum in the, in the days. And it was very much a culture clash and an old. You know, guard clash against these Brits, and there was a lot of that going on. And and then Grant and Jez went over to um, I think I'm not sure if you were there, Pete, um, but Grant and Stu went over to Anaheim, um, branding us as a, as the a Vintage Rebellion. And things cha- changed very quickly after that. There was a, a Push back against the name because of the SWF UK. So partially it was because we were branded as UK, and partially because of the F U as well in it. And a lot of people found found that offensive. Yeah, so. Rich.
2: Uh, and basically how that came about was we were we were in Anaheim, and um, we gave Steve Sansweet mm-hmm. a t-shirt with SW, SWF UK on it, and he kind of looked at it like, "What the? Ha- I'm not wearing yep. that." Yeah. And uh, and that's where it was, yeah we kind of sort of thought yeah I. Are we branded correctly? You know, is this something we really want to do? Because it is leading to you know, because it is you know, it, I, I don't know whether Ed did it deliberately or you guys did it, whoever set the form up. I think it, it you know it just looked rude, and mm-hmm. it wasn't going to do us any it works favors with with whatsoever. What's
0: Connection
2: UK? I know, but it just looks like you know you don't need to say it out loud, but yeah. um, it it wasn't doing us any favors with that
6: name. No, it doesn't. Um, I think knowing Ed. I don't think that was ever the intention. No, it was never. I think it was just yep. purely by accident. It was. It, it got abbreviated for the
1: T-shirts from memory. Yeah. Do you remember the T-shirts, yeah, yeah. the SWF? And Ed, Ed forcibly put the little dot in, I think, to make it SWF.uk yeah. on the T-shirts. And I think that's where that came from. But but Chris, I'm, I'm coming over to you now, because obviously you are um you know part of the team now from abroad, but you were initially a listener from abroad. Why on earth would anybody want to listen to this podcast from you know canada or north america when you've got the card you've got other shows out there which may be more relatable
5: i think it's really just down to um what some of you guys were saying earlier like if you're a person who just hammers out like hours and hours of podcasts every month in terms of listening and uh like for me for example i've got a long commute and um I mean, you know, more so from the Kivecast when it comes to the strictly academic side of things of learning card back numbers and whatnot. But between their show and yours, I really um, uh, picked up a lot of vintage collecting knowledge through just just absorbing hours of that stuff. And like, I haven't been collecting nearly as long as most of you guys, but I feel like I I it's very a rare it's a rare feeling these days that I hear about something that I'm completely unaware of in vintage collecting and it's it's I guarantee it's just from taking in all those podcasts and um you know I know it's not a it's not it's not it's not easy it takes a lot of work to sort of be as regular as you guys have been over the years so I really appreciated uh, what you guys were doing and I I just had a look uh, back and I think it was uh, it was somewhere around September 2019 where you had a little bit of a exodus of hosts from the show where I messaged you guys. And I was just um, wanted to make sure that uh, uh, if I could do anything to keep keep the wheels moving, I would be happy to help.
1: Well, definitely um, between myself, Pete and Stu in the main, we just couldn't keep the social media going as well as what we wanted to. Um, we all said we're going to do this and Pete was going to do that. I was going to do this. Stu was going to do that. just was going to do that. Within a month, nobody had done a thing. And that's just the kind of people we were, you know. But you come along definitely helped push that side of it. Um, and we can never, ever underestimate how much of a difficult job you have because it is so consuming. Um, I mean, what we have had one or two people try and, and they've, you know, tried different systems. we well, getting the algorithms right. It's, it's nigh on impossible, nigh on impossible. So we are where we are today. Um, a hundred episodes. So I think we've probably talked enough about where we want to go.
2: It's a top 100 list of most frequently sold loose complete figures since 2014, according to Starl's From least frequently sold to most. <laughs> At 100, with 184 recorded sales since 2014, is an A Wing pilot and his pesky blaster. It's also the first of our last 17. In at 99, it's the Lando General Pilot, who doesn't really require his blaster but does need his swishy cape, with 235 confirmed sales. 98 sees our hat trick of last 17, and even with the same blaster as A win, he's a little easier to get hold of, with 280 confirmed sales. At 97, fourth last 17 in a row, and it's accessory laden Luke Skywalker and Battle Poncho, with 319 sales. At 96, and it's the first Ewok of the night, and our fifth last 17, Warwick. With 333 sales. At 95 is yet another pilot figure. This one drives a B wing with a frequency of 503. 94 is Richard's favourite R2 with pop up Sabah on 517 sales. At 93 is Ewok number 2, our cuddly Rombo, with 526 sales. At 92, he's not a pilot but he's close to you can get. It's the ATST driver on 541 sales. At 91, it's the first of our non-carded figure entries, the Silver Booted Disco Guy Blue Stangletooth on 589 and completing our first 10. At 90, Last 17 proves harder to source with Headhunter and man with 637 sales. Into the 80s at 89 with our first Princess Leia in a Hoth outfit with 649 sales. 88, surprisingly low for Last 17 Luke in his Stormtrooper outfit, let's hope those helmets are genuine because it's 680 sales. 87, yet another Last 17 and Ewok number 4, Lumat with 687. 86, yet another Last 17 and Ewok number 5, Paplu with 700. 85 sees the Pilot Club add another member due to those darned accessories. It's the Cloud Car one this time with 702 sales. 84 and its baggy trousers Barada on 710. 83, playset figure number 2, the Dianoga Trash Monster with 766. At 82, princesses in distress are not that common, especially if she accessorises. It's Lira in combat poncho on 820. At 81, his face might be shaped like a dried plum, but prune face is not as common as you think with 880. 80, our first 12 figure, the shrunken head of Han Sado on 845. Out of the 80s at 79, another Jabagoon, this time is Nickto on 880 sales. At 78, the supposedly rare Yak Face just makes it into the last 25, even though it's the 13th last 17 we've had so far on 891 complete sales, even though complete can mean many things with Yak Face. At 77, Ewok number 6, Wicket W. Warwick, probably still searching for his stick after he poked Princess Lear just one time too many. And it's 76, the third layer, and the one who belongs in the clouds, being chased by cheesy administrators all day. It's Leah Organa Bespin gang with 926 recorded completed listings.
1: So the next five topics that are that I've initially looked at is. Uh, originally I originally had 12, uh, 12 is going to be far too much. We'll be here all night. So I've narrowed it down to five or six. So I've picked out an episode which has a theme on it, which I think is probably the biggest things that have, is, we've covered over the last 100 episodes. So, um, Andy Spoons are going to come over to you next. Okay. So episode seven, Mr. Trilogo was an, an interview that we did with Joe O'Brien. And that possibly was the first of the interviews we did with a, focus collector and rather than focusing too much on that one area because there are many focus collectors out there now do you want to lead into how focus collecting and the attention to detail has changed over the last you know eight years because it's unreal where we are now with variant villains and things like that
3: yeah i mean it, it, i'll tell you what going through this makes me want to go back to some of these early ones because joe joe's a name that he kind of left the hobby a long time ago he's now a real real ghostbusters man still occasionally see him out and about someone I've never met in person but yeah it would be very interesting going back to uh to hearing what he had to say back then but the the you often hear you know that the focus collecting started started in the states and some of the big name collectors you sort of see them arguing amongst themselves every now and then about who was the first person to to focus purely on a character and um, speaking of, you know I, someone that does many many years after uh those guys did it. Jason did as well, and you and you and your you R fives. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of us about. But then, this yeah, as you say, this last eight years, um, and probably particularly the last five years, I think it, there's been a big sea change actually. Whether it's whether it's price related, and you know, it's a lot of money these days to put um, a run together of every variation of a of a card back but also people looking in for this for the more detail the the coup element. so i I remember sort of wolf i can't remember what wolf's surname is but he was he was guy that sort of started this and the the end point now is with the guys on the variant villains looking at the different blaster molds tracking down coups to factories none of that was around eight years ago when you when you guys started this uh, and it's, uh, and it's, it's an area that I've been left behind a little bit as well. I say a little bit, a lot. Not not sure what's what's going on there. And uh, there's so much information out there that should it should it all be in a central place? I suppose is is the big question.
1: Well, I mean that is the big question, isn't it? Because there are so many different areas now so if you're going to go to diecast you will go to your website no likelihood if you're going to go to you know things like that'll be on the swca there's a lot on there but equally there's a lot not on there or incomplete information and um, not through anybody's fault you know and i do certainly don't want to be critical of the swca but it's not as up to date as the cardcast may be or it may not be as date as the swca blog and this information has spread all over the place. Um, Mark, I'm going to come to you um, next because the variant villains have certainly done a lot of work and I've seen you interacting with some of those people down in um, Echo, Echo Live. Has that been something that you just never saw eight years ago compared to where it is now, the attention to detail?
6: Sort of old school collecting. Um, if you had a Boba fat figure, you had a Boba fat figure. There, there wasn't this PVP you know, um, a Hong Kong fat, a Taiwan fat. It was just simply, you know, a tick in a box. Variants didn't really... I personally didn't really register with me until I started getting back into collecting about 10 years ago. And um, all of a sudden you start realising, oh, hang on, this this variant end of the collecting scale is, is pretty interesting. So I started getting into that. And obviously when you start scratching the surface you open up a whole new uh, area of collecting. It's quite incredible. And then as time's gone on, I've noticed, I, I got out of variant collecting because I just found it getting far too, just just too detailed, um, where, to the point where you've got people looking for coups with um, the copyright at a certain millimetre below the second line, and it was just like, this is just going a bit too far for me. So I got out, sold up, got out, and um, uh, haven't really looked back since. Um, And I've also noticed that the whole variant collecting area at the moment has has gone very, very quiet. About four or five years ago, it it seemed to really reach a peak. People were uh, starting up. Facebook groups uh, related to, uh, was it Sergio Sierra um, mm-hmm. and the uh, variant group that he started? And then uh, Echo took it over, and it seemed to be this whole variant side of collecting that was really, really strong. And uh, new variants coming to light, like the Red Bar R5D4, I mean, that, that wasn't really a thing uh, a few years ago. And now all of a sudden, it's, everybody's looking for one, uh, fetching like three, four hundred pounds for a a really good loose one. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange how it sort of peaks and troughs with that side of collecting, I, I found. Um, certainly doesn't seem to be as uh, busy as it once was. Um, and I quite like focus collectors. I Some people will say, like, well, what's the point of having all the same figure? Whereas if you know uh, people like Dave Shorter, who collects Admiral Akbar. There's something incredibly cool about seeing a whole shelf of loose Admiral-like paws on display. It's just bizarre. It's just a mental side of collecting. I, I, I really like it.
1: Well, th- there's focus collectors within focus collectors. So you, you're right there. Um, I like seeing the, the 50 Gamorian guards on a shelf, and, and I like seeing that kind of thing because those guys are... Yes, they're interested in, in the dealing things, but then you've got somebody like Mark Baker, for example. Mark Baker is the first to hold his hands so to say. He may be the only person who's interested in the world in certain parts of what he's collecting, but he enjoys it, loves it, and shares the information. You that take it or not. I kid you not, about five years ago, I remember reading something on the Imperial Gunnery where somebody had found a variant in a leg stance and he was measuring the heels between the figures, and one was one point six millimeters and one was one point eight millimeters and trying to class that as variant and at that point, I was kind of like that is it it's gone for me, but the work that you know the guys in echo and mark Baker I was doing i I thoroughly appreciate it um it's not too dissimilar from what you get from Matthias with these a new proof book you know it's it's very much a thorough in depth documentation of things but but going back to Andy's point is that a lot of this information disappearing now you're right things are going quiet you're right you know if we don't cover something in a podcast it's it's two years down the line those episodes gone so pete i'm going to come to you next because you you are quite good at having ideas for documentation and various other things um how can we tie all this thing together together or should we just not bother and maybe in 10 years time somebody else is going to repeat the whole process and do it better
2: yeah, I, I think it's it's a very hard question to answer, to be fair, Rich, because um I think when we probably start the podcast, you know, a website would have been a great idea, but these days people are you know, sl- start to move away from doing the web websites because of probably because of security issues and, and keeping these things maintained these days. It is, you know, and unless you've got a big company behind you like a Wix or a Shopify or something like that, you know, it's gonna cost you a lot of money to keep it going. So I do worry about um, you know, the likes of you know Andy Preston and Andy Norton and Jason. I mean, your websites could just disappear um, because a company might just collapse and all the all the information just goes or it gets hacked and it's gone. Um, I'm assuming there's backups somewhere, but I do worry. I do genuinely worry about about all this information. That's that's why it'd be wonderful to see the the archive kind of take on a new. You know, and it needs someone with some real expertise, but take on a new kind of tact really of gathering up all this information to one place and maybe it goes under the under the starwars.com banner i don't know i mean something needs to happen because we don't want to lose all this information and i I, I think it i i have to say richard i think if it if someone stopped doing it would it be possible to gather information in again i mean could jason's website for example be done again if he just
3: wiped it off the face of the earth now but it's not even about like so we yeah as you say we've all got websites with with information on that would be relatively easy to replicate. But going back to the sort of the focus collectors. Now, I um, when I was more um, regular on uh, Star Wars Forum UK, you know that kind of the thing I bang on about every time someone will put up a, a Han hoff with a uh, stormtrooper. Blaster on a, on a Palatoy card saying oh weapon variant and I would chime in not weapon variant you know that's that's your uh, your P P B figures they all came I remember more of them came like that than the others and you know and I'd chime in and, and anybody that was reading would go away with that knowledge other other people say the same as you see it on Facebook now but it's the kind of thing you know from being a focus collector you know, that that was my one fact. And, as, and if you stop posting, those sort of one facts disappear back into the ether. There are other people, clearly, that, that know these things as well. But if they're not posting, it's all that sort of ephemeral information. Now, having having that <laughs> in a central location would be really useful. But how do you go about it? But anyway, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let Jason answer your question now. Uh,
6: okay, well,
0: c- covering the two points raised so far. So I've, I've, I've had a focus collection for T1B for, um, since about... 2008. No, it's not something I actually uh, uh, add to anymore. Um, I got to the point where I would got all, most of the, the low and medium hanging fruit mint on cards. And the ones I need are just either incredibly rare or incredibly expensive. So I need a I need a PBB POC and there's only one mint on card and it sold for 8,000 euros about seven or eight years ago. So I'm not going to get one of those. I don't have a Paltoy forty five A 21 B mint on card. I've got a very nice resale, and again, that's another one that sold for you know eight thousand odd quid a couple of years ago, and I'm, I'm not going to be paying one of those for one of those. So, and in terms of the var- the variants, yeah, um, see, so Stephen Collier was doing um, doing work for Variant Villains, he's trying to they're trying to um, basically go through each figure in detail. So, I did spend uh, several days going through my collection for him to to kind of categorize all the different types of, you know, Q1B figures there are. And as it turned out, there are several more than what is classically thought to exist. And, you know, it was, it was interesting to help out in that, but I, I don't particularly have a strong interest in getting each of those new variants because, you know, um, I'm, I'm just not that interested in variants. In terms of um, the, the websites and stuff like that, um, the Toy website was originally, the Matrix was originally done by John Ford. And when I joined the hobby in 2005, I think it was, he'd kind of done several updates to the Matrix. And then I think he did one shortly after I I joined the hobby. And then that was it. It kind of stopped. And I kind of got, because I was kind of going through and I decided I was going to try and collect every single Palatoid cardback variation. I was just like, right. So I've got, I've got, I've got John Ford's Matrix. But then I found millions of new entries and different kinds of, you know, different cardback variations. So I just thought, well, what what I'm going to do is I'm going to take take the Matrix that he did. And I'll, I'll expand it, and I'll add all the stuff that I've found out, and I kind of acknowledged him on the website. I mean, I, I think I tried reaching out to him, but he had no interest in the hobby at that point. So that's, that's where the Mr. Palatoy Cardback Matrix came from. In terms of, you know, looking after the, the Matrix, I mean, it's now in book form, in um, Echo Guide for it, so it's in paper form. But, I mean, I do, I do all, all of the files that go on there I have absolutely no faith in my web hosting company. They're just charlatans, and there has been periods of time there was one time several years ago where they the whole everybody's everybody's website came down, and it was questionable whether they were going to be able to recover anything. So all of my files are backed up so if 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 they are lost, I can just i could I could basically take those files and host them on another server so or if I lost interest in the hobby and decided I didn't want to do it anymore, I would I'd very happily just hand the files on to whoever wanted to take up the mantle and do that. So there's no, from my perspective on my, on my Palatoy matrix, or our Palatoy matrix, it's, a, it's you know it's something that we all contribute towards. I don't think there's any danger of that information being lost. The, the last thing I'd say is, you know, don't, don't stick all your eggs in one basket. Don't say, right, there's the, the master central de- repository for everything. You put everything in there, and then if we lose that, where are you? I think I think having different sites that kind of replicate the information is a good thing because over time, you know, some of those sites are just going to disappear because the people who are, you know, looking after them haven't done their backups properly. And I know, I know uh, Wolf had a, a big problem where he had, he had his stuff on a hard drive and he lost his hard drive and he lost, you know, years of, you know, pictures and stuff that he took. But you've always got to think, you know, anything online, you've got to think, where are my backups and how are those backups backed up? You know, because the, you know, the the unthinkable thing will happen eventually to someone.
2: I think the best best way of moving forward with with collecting stuff would be to create something along the side of a Wikipedia kind of thing. I mean, wikis are out there. They're free to use. You can set them up. You can give people as many admin rights as you want. And, you know, and they can be hosted, but it would need to be attached to people who can keep that thing running. Um, Also
3: also people with with time. I mean, there's such a thing. Such a thing exists. It's very interesting hearing this, actually, because there is. So talk about archaeology a little bit on this thing. There's a thing called the Archaeology Data Service. So any archaeological site in the UK, any any bit of commercial research, the results get uploaded to the archaeology data service now it's it's masses of information there's a lot of people doing it rather than um people collecting stuff but actually in terms of people people actively out there because the numbers probably aren't that that dissimilar but there's the new data coming in all the time is 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 much higher but that's that's full-time job for a team of people and and they charge a lot of money for it as well Um, if 'Cause the wiki is the only way this would work with people having those editing rights. But you would still need someone to um have ownership or a team of people to have ownership of, of correcting that data or making making sure it's good. So at the moment everyone doing their individual things, that works because it's not it's not a full time job. As soon as that grows, it's like, and it's probably why the um the Collector's archive hasn't changed for so long. Because it just takes time. Someone to go someone to go through that and wheedle out all the duff entries or add photos. That's a
1: big job for someone. And I think there lies the problem. Well I want to bring Chris in now because Andy's mentioned forms and things. Now there was an attempt to do that, Chris, and that was tentative in some kind of hybrid between a forum and Facebook. So Chris has two websites I want to talk want want you to bring in just to wrap this section up now. Is take a website like scott bradley's website if you want to find out about canadian collectibles, that website is there and it is the go-to place and it's the bible but his website doesn't go into variations doesn't need to so for example you take those skin wrapped canadian figures Okay. They are so rare, they are documented, we know they're there. Do we really need to know the CEO that comes on those figures? Do we really need to know the different weapons and the different combinations of them? And is there a place for that? and and secondly, do, do you think that Tantive has also not reached its potential and that is also starting to peter out?
5: Wow, that's um uh, that's a high stakes question there. I can say that uh I've recently actually made use of Scott's website because, uh, as 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 you uh, uh, Canadian uh, collectors may uh, out there may know, there's, like, I think three puzzles, uh, the Kenner puzzles, that only came out in Canada, which you, I always got to keep an eye open for those. I had to double-check which they were again. Um, so, you know, it's still relevant for me. It's just, like you guys were saying earlier, when it comes to those sites, it's really just a matter of will through neglect or circumstance, will those hosting services e- like e- stop either by payment or by the hosting company having a problem? right? So uh, I think um, the information is going to be out there. It's going to be accessible in one form or another. There's st- Like like Jason was saying earlier, putting his Paletoi Matrix into a book means that essentially it's not going to be lost. I don't know how many of those they made, but somebody will always have one handy if Jason... Uh, goes crazy and cancels his website without telling anyone. You know what I mean? It's going to be out there for good. I'll never now. do that,
0: but I mean, yeah. I could, yeah. could get hit by a boss. I mean, that, yeah,
5: so. <laughs> exactly. So you're not going to lose that information. I think what's important is that just that it has multiple sources, right? Like, like I think something that freaks me out once in a while is uh, I'll see on YouTube a video, for example, that says uploaded like 16 years ago. <laughs> and it's like it's like i don't know if youtube will ever delete old videos from abandoned accounts and you know be since we've been doing i know it's been a bit less lately but since we've been doing enhanced segments on our youtube channel for example there's uh, the vintage rebellion youtube page is the only google search result for some niche topics that uh, Pete has talked about in the licensee section, for example, if we all lose the, the login for that Gmail, I'm not confident that those videos are ever going to go away. They'll probably be there forever, and I think it's just a matter of multiple sources and multiple platforms, and then there'll always be a search result to be found. So efforts like uh, what the the guys over at Tantive are doing are, are useful because for certain niche topics you search them on google that's the first result you get because it's not uh, handled with such care anywhere else so i it's it's i don't think it's so much about universal adoption as it's just good if there's an active community that maybe start a database even if it's slightly redundant to another one just because that way with all with many plates spinning you'll always be able to find something
1: I mean that that is absolutely a fair point that having the multiple sources backing up things um the the SWC has a lot of great information on there, but there are times there are entries in there that are now not quite accurate, and some people read them. But it's on the SWCA um. But having other sources back on that was a really really good point, um. And I don't think anything's going to be finished, and I don't think there is one answer. Um. Some people could say perhaps an apps answer, but how long's apps going to be out for? Apps will disappear, you know, at, at some point as well. So I don't think there is ever going to be one one size fits all or one kind of model but uh, yeah some interesting points there guys
2: It's the top 100 list of most frequently sold loose complete figures since 2014 according to StarWarsTracker.com from least frequently sold to most, now it's numbers 75 to 51 At 75, Joseph has nothing on this dream coat. It's Hand Trench Coat with 955 confirmed complete sales. 74, an everyone's favourite fuller figured weepy monster trainer. It's the Rancor Keeper with 973 sales. 73, it's the Bestman Security Guard with a sticky out leg, breaking the 1000 with 1007 confirmed sales. And at 72, he'll make you better by inserting sharp objects or drowning you in a Bacta tank. It's 2 1B on 1019. 71. Talking of pokey sticks, the General Medine won't hesitate to give you a prod if you're sleeping during a briefing on 1037. 70 is the shorter red jumpsuited version of his disco bro, the red snaggletooth on 1046. Into the sixties now, with a second female on the list. She hangs around in dungeons and taunts droids all day until her arms fall off. Evie ninety nine with one thousand seventy three sales. A sixty eight, it's the other Bespin brother from another mother, the Bespin security guard with the straight legs on 1077. At 67 the grandfather of Ray, an all round great leader of the senate, that naughty purple sabred jedi left him scarred, how dare he, I hope Yoda got to hear about it, it's the Emperor on 1129 sales. At 66 Jabba's got goons everywhere, it's Clartu and Skiffguard outfit on 1143. At 65, the 7th Ewok and we're not even halfway, Tebow with his funky stripes on 1157. At 64, with several accessories to source, it's Jedi Knight Luke Skywalker with 1168. 63, there's nothing fishy with these numbers, it's Admiral Ackbar on 1175. At 62, Jason Smith's potential next cosplay, because it's his favourite figure, Lobot, on 1202. At 61 goodness knows what they were thinking when they put his face together, it's 9 num with 1203 sales. 60? Is it blue? Is it purple? Is it the light? Maybe it's Maybelline. It's the little pig guy, the Ugnaughton 1212. Into the 50s now and at 59 the greatest figure of all time appears, Princess Lea Organa Her Majesty on 1219. At 58 slightly cheating here but finally all complete isn't that hard, apparently? It's a size snootles band with 1,257. At 57, the 15th last 17 and the best accessory hand solo with carbonite chamber on 1,286. At 56 with a face only a mother or a crazed suicidal doctor could love, it's Warris Man with 1,299. At 55, it's a face only a mollusk could love. It's Squidhead with his blaster and nice outfit with 1,317. 54, Han Solo is proving popular at the moment. This one is cold as the icy stare his beloved points his way. It's Han hearth at 1,323. At 53, it's the Imperial Commander with 1,327. At 52, these commanders do stick together. It's the Attack Commander with 1,350. And at 51, with two choice accessories, our one-handed son of the Sith Lord, Luke Bespin is at halfway with 1,398 confirmed completed complete sales.
1: Let's move on to the next topic then. So this was from episode 20, Rebel Rebel. And we focused heavily on the SWCA and its blog and spawning of other websites, apps, podcasts and other things. Now over the 100 episodes, um, there's a lot of stuff that has come out, a lot of new um, podcasts for example. Um, so obviously we've got Generation Skywalker and their whole, um, blog and their presence and, and their, you know, different types of shows. We have other podcasts such as, uh, David Quinn's, um, Star Wars prototypes and pre-production. Fantatrax has come out, um, you know, we've all got pretty much websites, uh, Jason, and um, join us, museums came out. So, so guys, um, thinking back then over the hundred years, um, is this something that we can really celebrate and say that the community is doing well on or is there perhaps too much out there now and perhaps there's some need to be you know, rethought or are some going to die off or, or is it just fun and everybody's playing together? Andy, I'll come to you on that one, Andy Preston. Thank you, Rich. Yeah,
4: as, as you say, in the eight years that the podcast has been going... The, um, the the number of sources out there or resources for vintage information has absolutely exploded. 2014, it was probably Jedi News, the uh, SWCA, Rebel Scum, and a few others, but probably about it. Nowadays, you can't move for tripping over another podcast or, uh, or blog uh, or website or YouTube channel or what Facebook have you. Group facebook group indeed is it a good thing absolutely you know the more places that you can get your star wars content the better a lot of these different uh, resources focus on different areas they've all got that little um, usp uh and you know if you're after information on one particular topic then you generally know where to go they uh, you know the we talked to in the last segment about the, um, the the knowledge base in the hobby. And, uh, yeah, it's all out there, but it's spread across, you know, all these different areas. Getting everybody to contribute to a single source, uh, as you said, Rich, quite rightly, is probably never going to happen. So, uh, yeah, the diversity of um, sites that are out there has got to be a good thing, hasn't it? The... Uh, The other benefit, of course, is that these all do different jobs, these different types of media. Uh, You know, a a YouTube channel is different to a podcast, is different to a website, is different to a Facebook group. They engage the community in a different way. They present information in a different way. Um, And, uh, you know, even if it's the same thing being discussed, it's great to have those different ways of engaging and learning. So, yeah, I'm all for it. I think, uh, you know, the the sheer variety of content out there is really, really good for the hobby. Anybody else want to comment on that? Yeah,
1: Um, yeah, go go for it. I was going to say that initially in the early days of Facebook, I, I did the classic mistake. And I think everybody, possibly with the exception of Mark Daniels, has done the same kind of mistake where we've joined a lot of Facebook groups and we've interacted, and then we've tried to figure out which groups are going to continue, which groups we need to pull from. Um, so I'm, I'm going to come to Mark next. So Mark, um, what I'm thinking of here is, you know, things like the Star Wars timeline groups, the the 12-pack, and then the Empire Strikes Back, and the Giles groups. I mean, I joined all them. I tried to keep interested in them because I enjoy, you know, the the, the Kenner side of it, and then I joined the Canadian group, and I joined the bootleg groups, and I joined the diecast groups, and I like all those kind of areas. But I, I don't think you've done that unless I. I'm completely wrong because you focused quite quickly on your palatoy and the beyond the toys and things like that. And um, so, how did you? And what advice have you got for people who are still looking to get into that? How on earth do they navigate this huge plethora of websites and podcasts and Facebook groups and things?
6: I mean, there's that there's that much out there that you can get very easily distracted. You know, being of a, a collector of, you know, I haven't got tons of money to throw at this stuff. It's it's not something that, um, you know, I can collect everything. So in order to, you know, keep focused, you just try and uh, immerse yourself in the things that interest you. Don't get me wrong, you know, I, I, I do like to learn other aspects of the, the hobby and, and collecting. It's always good to have a, a really, you know, broad knowledge of stuff. But I, I, I don't personally get any uh, enjoyment out of joining every single group out there. You know, Facebook exploded with different groups several years ago, didn't it, where we had, you know, Jabbers and Echo's and then all of the, the different offshoots from that, like the Politoid Collector Group, Beyond the Toys, and um, variant collectors groups and, and what have you. And there's so many, it's so easy to set up Um, And a lot of those fall by the wayside. So unless you've really got something that a lot of people connect with and are prepared to engage with at the same time, because that's the other thing is it's all right setting something up, but unless you're getting any interaction with other people, it dies a very quick and um, uh, painful death, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it was relatively easy Uh, decision to make just stick with what I know um, and what interests me and that's why I've kept it going for as long as I have done.
1: I think one of the best decisions I made was I certainly didn't want to be part of it but shutting down the Yavin group um, because there was absolutely no need for it at all and um, there there must be 30 different vintage loose Star Wars groups and I think some of those groups possibly should be shut down just to um, you know make everything easier to navigate and, and to direct quality content into one place um i think
6: you know when you, you your facebook feed comes up first thing in the morning it start scrolling through and you just bombarded yeah. with the same thing from the same from different sites the same mm-hmm. questions so people posting the same post on different groups so you are seeing the same thing several times and you quickly realize you quickly Start filtering out which groups you actually want to stay part of and which ones you just mm-hmm. want to, you know, come out of and, and, and get rid of that uh, so that it's not clogging up your feed all the time.
0: I'd like to talk about the the original gangster uh, Facebook group here.
1: Uh, uh, would that be yours, very really, chance, Jason?
0: Otherwise known as Vintage Star Action Figures, a group that I started back in 2007. So I think it's about 15 years old now. Mm-hmm. And the original intent of that was that um, there were loads, you know. I, Facebook was kind of, you know, in its infancy, and I, I can't remember. There's there's people on Facebook who, who weren't, didn't know about, you know, Rebel Scum and SWF UK and all these other great resources out there. So I set up the Facebook group, and initially, as as new people joined, who you know they 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 had a kind of interest in collecting vintage Star Wars, but didn't know they were brand new to the hobby. They didn't know anything about the resources. I I said, well, what you want to do at this point is go and sign up to Rebelscom, sign up to SDBF UK, and go and join these great forums to learn about, you know, and kind of network and connect with people. And a lot of them came back and said, we don't want to do that. We want to do stuff on Facebook. So I was like, okay, well, let, let's do that networking and all that kind of good stuff on here. So it kind of went on for a number of years, and it had, like, you know, we had, you know, a few hundred members and then a 1,000 members and it was a change that Facebook made. Um, it was about five or six years after I'd created this group, whereby you could you could easily see the number of unread messages you had in a particular group. And the thing kind of took off at that point. And that's when everyone started creating Facebook groups. Um, and the kind of membership, kind of you know, the, the main difference with the one that I've got, it, it, I've always treated it as a gateway group. For, for new people who are new to the hobby finding their way in and from there being able to find resources that they need so a lot of people they will they will join my group because it's a public group so you can see it a lot of people over the years go, why don't you make it private because I don't want I don't want people knowing that i'm I'm posting about vintage collected I'm just like it's it's let your inner geek escape if you don't if you don't like that the fact that your posts are public and your non-star Wars friends will read them You really have to go and find a private group to do that because the purpose of my group is to get the new people in and kind of empower them to then be able to go and find other things and it's always been that case it's been that case and we're the only public group out there now and I think we're up to 48,300 members at this point but the, the definition of a member is a very kind of loose thing because with public groups on Facebook now you don't you know, you can you can you can subscribe as an interest. You don't you don't particularly have to kind of sign up particularly until you've you've done so. It's kind of a bit woolly, but we're approaching fifty thousand members now, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it's been an interesting kind of journey over the years. I, w- I would say with that, but um, I'm going to keep it going because new people pile in all the time, and it's a great way for them to kind of move, find find the bigger community.
1: Well, Andy, I'm going to come to you next. Um, so. One of the big explosions over the last eight years, I think, has been books. Books created by different collectors. So, the, the amount of books that's come out from Stefan Falkord, Jan Leroux, Matthias's books, um, we've got, you know, Matt George and Gary Borbridge and Stephen Ward, Engineering Empire, um, books coming out left, right and centre, books on Canadian collectibles, books on Lily Liddy. books on, um, you know, items from Mexico. It's just, Endless. And I certainly initially bought every book I could get my hand on and had come to a point, probably around about the Kim Simmons releases, that I thought, right, this is getting out of hand now. I can't do this. The, some of them are very costly and they would just take up too much room. So what do you think of the book market as being like since I started recording all those years ago? I assume you you mean me, do you, Rich? Well, actually, Uh, Andy, I've got to say, you are really irritating me at the moment. Do you want to know why? Because your name on our screen, you have Andrew Norton's lowercase, and everybody else has capitalised their name, and it's the first time I've noticed it in all the time that we've been recording.
3: I like to be a little bit different, Richard, that's me.
1: Yeah, definitely different.
3: And it's showing your OCD, if if (laughs) you find that annoying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, um, I'm exactly the same as you, actually. And it coincided with Kim's books as well. So I bought the first one of those and thought, I can't. And I think, you know, up till that, I had pretty much bought every book that had been issued, Uh, maybe a couple of them a little bit after the fact, the PPB books. I think I got them slightly, slightly reduced, but that that. I could see what was coming with the Kim books and I thought, I don't want to own all these. I wanted to own more than I do, so I just got the first one. But I thought, I'm not, I can't get this invested. And, and prices have been um, creeping up as well. Even even the hardback books used to be around maybe £40, that kind of mark. Everything seems to be pushing up sort of £70, £80 now. And that's that's a lot. I know we spend a lot of money on on toys, but I'm a toy collector, not a book collector. Uh, and that's that's a lot of money to spend just for fun. Although saying that, having seen the reviews and the guys showing off their uh, their the read five books that have been arriving in the last couple of weeks or so, that I'm thinking, oh, maybe I will pick up that one as well. Looks like a good book. But yeah, the, there's there's so many. But then this is, you know, and some fantastic ones as well. I think you know certainly the the niche ones. So the the, the proof books I've, I've read cover to cover. Matthias's. Uh, the uh, the Gus and Gus and Duncan's ones are always good. So the micro collection one, that's a, that's a lovely book, and you know I've talked about it many times. Potentially doing doing a diecast one, that's exactly the style I would do. But I mean, apart from time, the fact that the market is saturated with books, people are going through a lot of effort. If no one's actually, you know, not no one, but few, fewer people are interested in in picking up those books, which would be be a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, th- there's been a real boom, isn't there, in the last two, three years. Seems to be a new book every other week. When they're um, print-on-demand, Amazon paperbacks are sort of a bit easier to pick up, like like the Echo books that Jason mentioned earlier. When they're those 500-page hardcover Crowdfunding ones, it's a little bit more of a commitment to to go into that, and I'm, I'm not sure that's me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my view is like the, the, the books that come out. We're kind of a very small knit community, and if one of my one of my collecting mates has gone to the the effort of making a book, I will buy the book because that, that's how you you know you support each other. You know, the ones I'm less inclined to buy are the, as you, as you say, the ones which are expensive, the ones which have already been crowdfunded, I don't really feel that I'm, I'm obliged to buy those kind of books, particularly, and they're not ones I would I'd, I'd find that useful anyway. Um, the one thing that is missing, I mean, we've we talked about the the Echo Guide I did I did with Wayne 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 Totti for um, the Matrix, but it's not really a full Palatoy guide. And over the years, a number of different people have said, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna," I'm right, I'm, I'm working on my Palatoy book, but. I have still kind of got designs, you know. Kind of, I kind of started it on my on my on my website, on the Carback website. There are actually entries for all the Star Wars branded um, vehicles and play sets and, and other things that came out. And I figured out for Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Tri, and Tri logo, I needed about another to do another fifty pages. And I kind of saw if I could do that, that would kind of be a gateway into designing a Palatoy book. I mean, my my, my Palatoy book would just be a kind of reference guide. But then the other thing, I mean, this is the other big thing with books. You can't do a book unless you've got really good source, image source. So I wouldn't be able to do that book without the involvement of, there's probably about six key Palatoy collectors that would have to be on board to be able to produce that book. And, and, And if a couple of them weren't there, then you end up with a situation which has happened. in Some of the books that have come out where people are photoshopping images, and you know, they're filling, you know, they're, they're kind of making it up as because they because they haven't got access to the source, they're having to kind of Photoshop it, and I think that can be a little bit dangerous, especially in you know what what's meant to be a, you know a reference guide. If you've got a photoshopped image in there and the the skew is wrong or whatever. you're kind of spreading disinformation because people will come and go, oh, but the picture here shows, you know, this particular skill, whatever it is. But if it's been photoshopped, then it's not actually reflecting what was there. So, I mean, you've got to be careful with these things, I think. Mm.
1: And Pete and Chris, I'm going to come up, to you next to wrap this up, this is possibly the most contentious area. I think things like podcasts and blogs and websites, I think they're still quite controlled and there's still um, is a need for all of them and they've all got their place but what I can't get me head around are the tens of thousands of YouTube channels. So Pete, I'll, I'll come into this one if you can bring Chris in as well with it. How on earth Can you navigate that kind of area? Is it just crazy? everybody and their dog is now creating Star Wars YouTube content?
6: uh,
2: What's your problem, Rich? What are you going against YouTube content? (laughs) I mean, YouTube, I mean, for me, personally, but like Mark, I work at home. I work in a shed. I've got YouTube on all day. Uh, I've got YouTube premium, which means no adverts. And I I don't know. I, I guess the amount of stuff that gets churned out um, it does produce to somebody. I mean, I I, I I don't really watch it. I just listen to it. But I have a number of streams. I, I think it is it is the way to go, maybe. Maybe it is the better thing. I mean, as Chris said, do, does stuff ever get deleted from YouTube? It may be the best resource for stuff. I mean, if I'm taking apart a computer and it's a really complicated one and I've, I've, goodness knows how on earth I'm getting this bit of plastic off this bit of metal, the first place to go to is YouTube. Um, i'd go to youtube quite a lot of stuff to find out about a variety of subjects i think you're you underestimate the rich i think you need i think the north needs to embrace youtube because i think it is it is possibly possibly the maybe outside wikipedia maybe the internet knowledge base i don't know anyone want to chris do you want to want to fight me on that one
5: Pete, I think I know what what's bothering Rich, and it's he didn't want to say it, but I think it's, you know, it's it's uh, outlandish characters like certain people like um, let's refer to him as codename Ken or babe, who are out there. Uh, you know, yeah. ap- appropriating content from other people and repackaging it in a haphazard way, leaving Absolutely. out important facts, and uh, and and you know they're mining the 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 literary genius of uh, our friends and repackaging it in five minutes, uh, you know, and I, I often without crediting or the, you know there's the occasional some effort in crediting, but you know when you. And and guys like Kenner Babe have also famously imp- impersonated other people and faked stunts like finding vintage figures in stores and things like that. So it's just, uh, you know, I, I think people like that are pretty well identified. But, but I think tiny, I
2: tiny little bits of, yeah. I mean, the hobby as such, I mean... I mean does anyone take him particularly seriously outside of an entertainment sphere I mean why can we not mention his name is, is well, that well it's that just gonna...
5: well I don't know we, we I'm just not I'm just, he doesn't need any more subscribers he already has probably the most subscribers of any vintage Star Wars YouTube channel ever, which is another thing that probably bothers Rich a little bit. But um, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I, I
2: don't. I don't have any. Any. I mean, I know he is, but I don't follow him. I don't. Well, is, it is this? Not. Is this
5: someone whose initials are TJ? On yeah, the, he's the I, one he, that ripped he, you n- n- off,
1: Andy. Yes. Yeah.
5: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's just funny the because he, people like that have found the the right way to package content for it to appeal to the filthy casuals out there. And uh, they gain a lot of traction and become inadvertently representatives of this hobby, which it's unfortunate. But um, I- if you're at all sort of informed and actually part of the community, uh, the bad actors are easily identified. And personally, I'm a bit weird, but I I do love a bit of uh, drama in my vintage Star Wars collecting. So I think it'd be a bit boring without characters like that.
2: Yeah, I I, I do think you understand that, which I, I think you know YouTube is. It is a bit of wild west. I mean, they will get involved if you if you've got information. I mean, you know, the 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 workers of YouTube. I'm sure we've we've found out several times. If you have copyright information, you can get copyright striking and have your channel taken down. Um, if you, you know, if if you feel strongly enough that 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 your content has been stolen, you can you can approach YouTube and they will. They will actually look into it a lot of the time, not all the time, but they they can do it. But it's got to be something really specific. You can't just like go, oh yeah, he's come up with something. You know, uh, Jason Smith records a 48B, you know, stormtrooper isn't the same as this. Then they they probably won't give it a monkeys. But...
1: but Pete, I think the point is like, if I wanted to watch a video on how to disassemble an imperial shuttle, repair a cog, and put it back together again, YouTube's brilliant. I don't need 27 videos all showing me exactly the same thing. Um, and I think that's part of the problem with YouTube at the moment is you're not going to get 27 podcasts doing that. You're not going to get 27 websites. You're not going to get 27 anything, books. But you would get 27 videos all showing you how to disassemble an appeal shuttle. True,
2: um, true. But they do tend to kind of fall by the wayside a lot. I mean, yeah. if, a, if, if a channel doesn't get hits, a lot of content creators will just give it up. Mm. Um, I mean, they don't always delete it. there's stuff up there—you <laughs> look at some of the stuff on our channel early on when we putting random stuff on there. I mean, it's still there. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the the entertaining channels, which, which get a, a bit of a fan base, will, will will take precedent over the ones that people don't really care about. So yeah, I, I think you'll have an—you are always going to get a bit of a fad. Someone goes, "Hey, like, I've got 100 views," and someone go, "Oh, I'm going to do the same thing, and get 100 views," and and they dream of you know getting funded. But I don't think anything particularly much in the in the vintage world is gonna gonna make you a lot of money on youtube so you do tend to get a bit of natural selection going on there
1: On our 100th episode, I can't think of a better guest to grace us through his presence other than Ron Salvatore.
7: Good evening, Ron. Good evening, Richard, and uh, thanks for for allowing me to uh, appear on your 100th episode. It's always an honour.
1: Now, Ron, I've asked you to come on to discuss your article uh, published in October on the SWCA blog about the early bird certificate. Can you give an overview to our listeners about what the early bird certificate was? And can we put an end to the misinformation out there that cannot drop the ball? (laughs)
7: <laughs> yeah, well, I think we can. Uh, I've been trying to for a while, but um, the early bird certificate package was a stopgap product released by Kenner in the fall of 1977 to compensate for the fact that they were not able to get action figures to market in time for the holiday season. This is the holiday season immediately following upon Star Wars' release in, in May of 1977 and its subsequent uh, massive success, right? So because they the company did not sign the agreement, uh, the license to produce Star Wars merchandise until I think it was March or April of 1977, there was no way they could get action figures on store shelves in time for the holiday rush that year because it takes usually about a year um, to bring a plastic action figure to market. So the only thing they could really do was kind of release a glorified gift certificate, which allowed... Consumers to purchase the gift certificate and then they can send away for their figures, which would arrive a couple of months after Christmas. So that was their scheme, so to speak, to keep consumers engaged and to sell action figures that were not yet available. And uh, I think you're referring to in the, the mythology that that's grown up around that story to uh, the misconception. That's how I describe it as a misconception that Kenner somehow dropped the ball uh, they did not, as I explained, it, it was basically a function of their signing the license right before the movie came out uh, that they did not have figures on the on store shelves. So the, there was not an error on Kenner's part. It was just basically bad timing. And so the, the early bird certificate package was on, the only thing they could really do to, in effect, sell action figures for Christmas of 1977.
1: Now, from the Palatoy Engineers talk I attended a few years ago, I got the impression that Bernie Loomis was a very no-nonsense kind of guy. And the Palatoy Engineers nicknamed him The Bay and described him as quite a loud, brash guy who was very much in charge. Now, he must have signed off on this idea, so could you imagine the courage of the developer or the team of developers who went to him with this idea?
7: Yeah, I'm not sure we know exactly what happened behind the scenes on that. Certainly, Bernie Loomis has been credited by history with the idea for the early bird certificate package. I'm not sure if it was really his idea or if someone pitched it to him. But certainly, since he was the head honcho at Kenner at that time, he took credit for it. And uh, as I explained in the article that we're going to discuss tonight, um, it is on his his plaque for uh, the the Toy Industry Hall of Fame. And I have a picture of that plaque in the article. Uh, but, yeah, I think he was a brusque, no-nonsense guy. That That's the impression I've gotten from everyone who worked with him. He was not someone who, you know, tiptoed through the tulips when doing business. He kind of charged straight ahead. That was his reputation.
1: Now, your article is incredibly fascinating, and it's raised a lot of questions for me. So, um, first of all, can I just focus on, did Kenna really have the clout necessary with retailers to set a promise? Or were there other factors at play here?
7: Well, I think Star Wars had the clout, right? I think that's kind of what um, was driving Kenner's ability to do that and that holiday season. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, their ability was still somewhat hampered, even though Star Wars was a huge property at the time, because it was such a novel approach. And I think an approach that kind of rubbed retailers and also consumers the wrong way in, in a lot of occasions. But I think... If Kenner was trying to sell $6 million man gift certificates, and that was a pretty popular show, but not nearly as popular as Star Wars, I don't think that would have flown. But the fact that Star Wars was really a once-in-a-lifetime a lifetime property, a once-in-a-lifetime movie sensation, I think that's what really drove their ability to to market a product like that.
1: Do we know how the salesmen approached retailers with these ideas? So, for example, did they have any concepts or mock-ups available? Because it it must have been a hard sell for them.
7: I'm sure they had materials. You know, if you you look at the 1977 Kenner um, catalogue, which is called Products for Delivery Fall 1977, it has the uh, half-sheet artwork on the cover. There is some photos of the early bird certificate package that look like, you know, they're not the production examples. They look a little bit off. So I think they're early prototypes and there are also some stills generated that could be reproduced in newspapers and such. So I, I think they, they were armed with photographic representations of what the product would entail. They may have had some sort of early version as well, but I, I've never seen evidence of that, but they definitely have photographs. And that's really all you need to communicate the idea. You know, I don't know, it's basically just a paper product, so I don't know if it's that hard to represent to to retailers. Well,
1: there, there was a TV advert also to promote this certificate, which I'd yeah. imagine would have been quite costly to 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 produce and to run. Well, possibly not to produce because it's quite a simple advert. And in there, figures were promised between February and June. So, do you have any idea when this advert ran? Um, and do you think that kind of would have been worried because half of their audience would have had a birthday by the time, certainly we had, you know May June time. Since Christmas,
7: they did run a TV ad. Actually, funny trivia: I'm pretty sure all the existing copies of that television ad came from a uh, a cartridge tape that I purchased from a Kenner guy named Kai ha- High Catline years ago. And that before that, people remembered the early bird commercial, but nobody had seen it. And then I had Chris, I sent it to Chris Draguljic, and so we had it opened up. We had it transferred to video. To to I think DVD or something, and I think whoever is putting that on YouTube now is taking it from that DVD that Chris put together, which comes from my cartridge that I have, so just a fun bit of trivia on that one, but I would assume that commercial came out probably September to October, and yeah, I mean it would have been costly, but I think certainly that's probably the first television spot I'm aware of for any Kenner Star Wars product. Uh, but it would have been essential to getting the word out among consumers. You know, in addition, there was a print advertisement using Kenner graphics that ran in newspapers around the country. And I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure what date that ran, but it was in the fall. So it would have been in the lead up to, you know, the Thanksgiving period in America when most shopping is done. Uh, and that's, I have a couple of copies of that ad. That's a really Scarest thing to find an actual original newspaper ad. And then Kenner also, I think you can see the evidence in that article that we're discussing. Kenner also sent their, you know, their marketing folks out to do interviews with local press. And they did, you know, a lot of work on the ground uh, trying to get news stories in the newspapers about the product. And, And the gist of those interviews tended to be, hey, if you're interested in Star Wars, we don't have the figures available yet. Um, we're working on them hard, and don't forget that this is the only way to buy official Star Wars. You know that was the line. You want the official product, not the knockoff. And and so I think those are probably the three prongs uh, that, that that Kenner pursued in 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 boosting consumer awareness during that fall 1977
1: period. Well, certainly the general impression I got from the article was that there were a lot of dubious retailers and parents, but Kenner seemed fully prepared for their responses. Um, they seem to have, you know, pre- predicted every kind of possible response that we're going to get.
7: Oh, yeah. I think they kind of had a, a company line on it. I'm not sure how successful it was because it really was. There was just a, a tidal wave of negative publicity. I mean, th- out of all the, the stuff Kenner did during the Star Wars period, this was certainly, I think, the biggest flow of negative publicity they had, and it was right at the start of the line, so certainly not a pleasant experience. But, you know, they had they had themselves armed with various lines of discussion that countered that. Uh, and one of the big ones, like I mentioned, was this is the official Star Wars. It will be coming. This is what we've come up with to, to keep um, people satisfied for these few months where we don't have any product available. And they had some dubious... You know, excuses as well. Like one of them is, well, we think that if, if a child opens a Christmas present in March or February or April, it extends the feeling of the holiday season. I don't buy that. I don't think most people b- bought that one, but, you know, you, you, when you're trying to to um, counter the the effects of negative publicity, I guess you have to go with what you've got. And that's one of the things they had was was that kind of lame excuse.
1: Now, in your article, you, you you mentioned there that Kenna obviously had a, a small sample of parents and, and families that they spoke to, um, local toy retailers, and that seemed to be generally positive. But when it goes nationwide, you see far more of the the bigger retailers going, we can't sell an RUU, etc. And some very, very dubious quotes attributed to um, to parents. Do you think there was a bit of media hype backlash against them as well?
7: Yeah, I do. I think there was quite a bit of media pushback. I think that's kind of the main gist of the article was that more or less, I, I think that, you know, the, the media response was negative, which kind of put Kenner back on their heels a little bit. I don't, I suspect that they were aware that they were going to get this response to some extent. They did claim that they did consumer testing and, and testing with retailers, which is, I'm sure that's true. We don't really I mean without seeing the results ourselves, we don't really know what they were like, you know. Certainly once they make the decision to go forward with it, they're not going to say, "Oh, well, our testing was lousy, but we released it anyway," right? They wouldn't say that or they wouldn't say our testing was inconclusive but we released it anyway. They're obviously going to say, "Well, our testing showed that it was viable." You know, how viable? I don't know. My guess is they probably got had an inkling that it was going to have some negative response uh but maybe it was more extreme than they expected i'm not sure i think this is just my guess but my my assumption is that they they knew full well that it would be a controversial product and have some downside publicity but that they calculated that it was more important to get something on the market and i think they're probably right in that yeah, i think that was the right decision
1: the numbers that you quoted in your article staggering i didn't even dream that we'll be looking at you know, the numbers I think um, you put in there, there. was It was a million early birth certificates were, were printed. And, right. and the way that these were guarded was fascinating. Do you want to just give a little bit of an overview on that? And how on earth did you
7: find that article? Right, that was my favourite bit. And once I found that article, Richard, I, I knew that I had to put something together about this because I, I just had never seen some of this reported. But it's a, an article about the New Jersey company that was contracted to produce the actual packaging for the early bird certificate and to package them up and send them to stores. And I think they probably also made the store display, which is what they all came packaged in. So if you ordered the early bird certificate package, you got however many came in a full store display, right? And you just opened up the store display and put it on store shelves. And this company, this packaging company um, was tasked with, with doing that. And I had never really saw anything related to that. That's a new one to me. But this article kind of goes in depth because it's a local article and it's about a local company doing this. And it goes into depth with some of the behind the scenes stuff that went on with this. And it sounds like the the actual certificates that that were mailed away were delivered to this company and they had them on pallets awaiting packaging. And because each certificate is basically worth $10, right? So if somebody... Had just gone and taken a stack of certificates off the pallet, they could send away for however many early bird sets, each worth $10, right? Which, you know, in 1977 dollars is probably more like 30 to $40 dollars now. Uh, so they had actual material value, these things. So the company actually hired... Pinkerton guards, which is, you know, Pinkerton is a, an American company that does security. So they hired these security guards, independent security guards, to guard these certificates while they were in the warehouse to make sure nobody, you know, stole them, uh, which is fascinating to me. And then they were delivered in, in armored trucks and everything. The whole thing is, in a way, I'm like, okay, is this just BS that they're saying to make it sound like it's more crazy than it was? But my, my sense is that it's probably legit. But yeah, the numbers communicated in there is that this company packaged up a million early bird certificate early early bird certificate packages for shipment, which means to me that Kenner had calculated that on the upside, the max they were likely to sell was somewhere around a million examples, right? Because that's how many they ordered. Uh and then of course, you know, after they package them up, they get all the orders in from actual retailers. Sometime in the next couple of months, and then they know exactly how many that, that they need to deliver, and it sounds like it was about 500,000 that they delivered. So they printed up a million. They ended up selling about half of that, and the rest, according to the article, were pulped. They, they put them in a pulping machine to destroy them, and of course the whole time they were guarded by security guards to make sure nobody ran off with them. So half of the ones created were actually destroyed, and then about 500,000, it sounds like, were distributed.
1: Is there any evidence of that being used as some kind of marketing campaign? You know, all of these sealed, secret Star Wars things uh, being guarded by security guards. I mean, it sounds oh, yeah. wonderful.
7: If yeah, you know, I would if it was widely publicized and it was in a lot of different outlets, I would think that. But I don't. I want to say that article was not. It wasn't like an Associated Press article that was spread out to a lot of different papers. It was just one local paper. And my sense is that, yeah, it wasn't just publicity. I think that that's probably more or less legit that this company did all that because it wasn't really put out there as a promotional thing throughout the country. It was just one little story. Uh, you've just answered what AP means because I've read
1: AP a few times in your article and I thought and I'm going to have to ask one what, what that means. So right. I... It's like
7: a it's like a wire service where right. the AP, they'll, they'll, they'll write a story and then that story, I guess, papers that are part of the, the network will pick up the story so that... It's not really a local story, but it will appear in your local paper. Ah, right. That makes sense. Yeah, but absolutely. I, I want to say that one about the packaging company was uh, was actually by a, a, a local writer and, and only appeared in one paper. Mm.
1: So you've mentioned how these were presented in stores, but w- were these placed in toy aisles or were they near point of sales or were they just shoved wherever? Because they're quite a size, uh-huh. these things.
7: You're talking about the display, with the yes,
1: the display packet? is in the bin head, in the headers.
7: Yeah, I think it's really up to the um, the retailer. You know, later on, Kenner came up with these planogram things, which they hoped retailers would follow in setting up their shelves, and that was like an attempt to to standardize Star Wars displays. And, and but there's no law that you have to follow that, right? But in the early days, I don't think Kenner even really. Recommended to retailers what to do with these things. They they just sent it to them, and it it could go on a toy shelf, or it could go on a counter as you're checking out. Uh, The display is kind of it's not small, but you could it, it could go on a number of different places. I have seen store photos of it, and also on on YouTube there are some videos that show people shopping. You know, there's some period like news reports of people. Shopping for the holiday season in 1977 and you'll see it. It's just tucked into the toy shelves beside Other toys of the era where you can just grab one. So I think a lot of them just ended up in in normal toy store shelves
1: Now a million gift certificates. I mean that's four million action figures already that they were they were looking at uh, producing now I think that's amazing Um, But part of the problem initially I put down was the fact that can I keep referring to these as toys um, but then I thought later on, after I finished your article, was that a deliberate decision from the start? Because it appears in all of Kenna's responses, you know, the, the toy under the tree when it's not a toy.
7: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's some of the conceptual difficulties that consumers had. Uh, why would I buy a piece of cardboard that gets me a toy later? I mean, it's it's important to emphasize this has never been done, had never been done at that time and really has not been done since, where you would go under your Christmas tree and you would get... A piece of paper saying you mail away for something and you'll get it several months later. That that was certainly very novel. And but yeah, the, positioning it the cer- certificate as a toy. You're probably right. They're, it's kind of a psychological game where it's like, we'll tell everyone this is the toy so that there won't be a problem surmounting that conceptual hurdle for for people. Now
1: I love the point. And um, that you made about figures maybe never arriving and whose responsibility it would be to sort out refunds or to deal with the mess, whether that's retailers themselves or whether it's Kenner. And it's certainly not something I considered before. I guess the Kenner legal, legal department were all over that.
7: Probably. It's probably something they thought about. You know, I'm just thinking through if I'm a, a retailer and toy retailing and retailing in general in 1977 was much different than it is now. You know, now... <sighs> at least in the in the states it's like walmart and target and and they, they don't even have that much toys anymore right so back in the day there was a lot of mom and pop you're talking about small regional places like if i'm a guy who runs a toy store and kenner is pitching me this this item and it's basically not even a toy how would i react and i i'm just running through the one of the running through the the objections and one of them is okay well Say I put this in my store, somebody buys it, they send away for the toys and then they don't like them or they're broken or something. Does the consumer come back to me? Do they go to Kenner? I mean, it's, it's a little bit hard. Like you don't even know what you're selling, right? You're just selling some future thing that could be junk when it ends up arriving. I think that's one thing that probably bothered some people. Um, the bigger thing that I think bothered retailers is just thinking it through. If, more companies want this route, pretty soon you wouldn't have any actual products. You know, you would just have these promises for products. And a a, a toy manufacturer could really get around a lot of the risk. You know, generally speaking, if you're making a product, right, especially back in 1977, Kenner calculates, okay, we're going to make this toy. We think it might sell X number. They go ahead and they make it they invest a lot of money in it. If it fails, it fails, and they they lose money, right? But in this model, you're making a promise for a product, you're putting it out there and selling it beforehand, so by the time a few months goes by, you know ahead of time how many you need to produce, right? So you can kind of use it to to keep your production costs down because you can calculate, okay, I don't need to make a million of these, I can only make 500,000, right? Even though I thought I might sell a million, I know I've only sold 500,000, so I can cut my losses on this. And I think that kind of shoving that responsibility or that risk off by asking retailers to sell a certificate rather than an actual product kind of rubbed probably some retailers the wrong way. And I think that's some of the pushback you see. It's like, well, some of these retailers in the articles I quoted say things like, you know we don't sell promises or i would not ever stock an item like that I, you know i think they're kind of pushing back on kenner and saying look if you want us to carry a product go ahead and go through all the cost and expense and everything of making a product and we will sell it we're not selling we're not going down this route of selling a, a certificate uh obviously kenner i don't think that in their minds i don't think the the goal of this was to do that you know like like we ex like we discussed already this is pretty much an unfortunate circumstance for them and they're just trying to make the best of a bad circumstance but from a retailer perspective if if they do this once and it's a success what's to stop them from doing this every year and we don't want to go down that route uh now of course you know a lot of toys first of all toys are mostly sold to adults now it seems um and then the second thing is that we do a lot of this um what's it called uh crowdfunding. Crowdfunding, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now it's, you know, it's not even controversial. You know, Kenner cut the retailer out altogether and they just sell direct to the consumer. And if not enough people sign up to buy it, they just cancel the product. Right. So it's kind of the early bird certificate strategy on steroids at this point. But back in 77, that was a, 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 certainly a weird situation.
1: Now, you mentioned some toy stores like uh, Marshall Field who refused to stock it, and and I totally get why, but there must have been some humble pie and perhaps some renegotiation very quickly once the the toy figures actually started to arrive.
7: Yeah, well, I think, I don't know if they really cared, I'm not sure how much, based on some of the articles here, I mean, I know we said 500,000 potentially over the whole country, I don't know for each individual retailer, how much they're missing out on in sales from the holidays. But I don't know if any of these companies really ever intended to not carry the actual figures once they hit stores. So Marshall Field isn't carrying the early bird certificate package, but I think they're always pretty much probably happy to carry the actual figures once they came out. So yeah, I don't think the antagonism extended to ever thinking like, we're not going to carry these at all it was just like we're not going partic- to participate in the certificate you know business but we will buy the figures once they actually exist so yeah you know as i mentioned in the article once the figures came out i think that all of this bad publicity was kind of like in the in the wake you know it was behind them and it, it all seems like a great story now because the, the line was a success and i don't think anybody really thinks about it negatively now but at the time it was i think pretty negative
1: now, some of the headlines were an absolute dream for the editors. Uh, I mean, there must have been, you know, kids picking well, doubtful kids, but parents picking up these newspapers and seeing things like Star Wars toys and twenty five, twenty five, and kids going, "What on earth's going on here?"
7: Yeah, and I think that's what that's why you see uh, among American, you know, adult collectors in particular the sort of mythology of the early bird certificate package. You know, it, it's had other than maybe the Rocket Fat, it's the it's the thing that has the most mythology surrounding it because people remember stuff like that. They remember picking up the paper and seeing the article about this disastrous promotion or this controversial promotion, the fact that the figures wouldn't come out until twenty five twenty five, all that stuff. It, when you're a kid and you see that and you hear adults talking about it, it, it lingers and it, it makes you remember it. And in a weird way, it adds to the desirability of the original product. It makes it more collectible because it has that story attached to it.
1: Are you aware of anyone who actually received this as a kid and what the reactions were?
7: Um, that's a good question. I, I, I pretty sure I remember Gus Lopez talking about getting it and you know, he's 10 years or so older than me. And I remember him, that being something he, he talked about as a good memory of getting the early road certificate package. And he remembered the commercial. He was one of the people I remember talking about the commercial, I'm pretty sure, even though we couldn't find a copy of it for a long time. Uh, so he's someone I know who I think had a positive experience with that product. But off the top of my head, that's the only one I can really remember. But you know, a lot of people got it for the holidays, so I'm sure if you polled collectors who were of age in that period, I'm sure we could find quite a few who received it
1: why didn't kenna focus on the other aspects much of the gift certificate because there were some i mean obviously the stickers are stickers but you know membership to the fan club you know things like that that didn't seem to be featured much in Kenner's responses to uh you know some of the questions that were put to them
7: yeah they maybe could have you know emphasized that a little bit more you know part of the hesitancy might have been that sounds almost like you're trying to divert attention away from the mm, yeah. from the, the main issue, which is the action figures. you know I, I think maybe they calculated that the, the right thing to hone in on is this idea that you know there are valid reasons we can't have figures on the market and two, these are the official Star Wars figures. So if you want official Star Wars figures, this is your way to get them. And then three, don't worry the figures will be coming in a couple of months. I think that was kind of their messaging. And I think they mentioned a little bit of the other stuff, but, yeah, they they don't focus too much on that because I I don't know if people would have taken that as it sounds like an excuse, like, oh, you can join the fan club. I think pretty sure you could join the fan club without buying the the figures anyway. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm not sure that would have, you know, minimized the negativity. Uh, But, you know, one of the big issues on their mind at the time was that all of these knockoff things had proliferated. Uh, you know, especially the, um, ideals line, I think it's called Star Team, which got a lot of press. Like a lot, if you go back and look at articles about 1977 and the holidays, there will be a lot of mentions of how Kenner screwed up by not getting figures out. And there are also a lot of mentions about ideal and their star team. So I don't know if the ideal company had great PR people who were working the boards trying to get articles into papers or if. That was a legitimately popular thing at the time. I, I know that line was fairly successful, but, you know, today it looks ridiculous compared to Star Wars. And and there was a legal challenge. So that was another thing you'll find in old newspapers at the time is that uh, Lucasfilm or Fox or whatever entity it was sued Ideal over copyright infringement on the star team. And Ideal actually won. It was right around the holidays. So that's another thing that made Kenner look bad is that Ideal won this lawsuit uh, after they got sued. Uh, because they proved that they were not ripping off Star Wars. I think all those figures were earlier items. that Ideal just pulled off the, the shelves and re, retooled them and sent them out. So I think they won that lawsuit. But uh, clearly the, the drive to buy that stuff was based on the success of Star Wars. So you can see why Kenner would have disliked that. Yeah, well, you've
1: just answered my next question then. How did Ideal get these figures out so fast? Um, so they already had them, if you like, Um they just need tweaked, and they must have been delighted when Star Wars was announced, and it was such a huge success that not just them, I'd imagine lots of toy companies would have been looking to see what the what rules that could bend, etc.
7: Oh, yeah. If you were a toy company in, in 1977, as soon as Star Wars got big like it did, you just went and, like, what can we re release that, you know, has a space tie in? And because that was the space toys were the big thing for the next couple of years. And so if if you had something that was already made a few years ago and you could just pull out the molds and, and pop out some examples and get them on store shelves with some Star Wars ish, you know, packaging, you know, that was, you know, ideal, so to speak. So uh, that's exactly what ideal did. And they were the one that got the most press for for their star team line during the, the holiday season of 77.
1: Now I love your articles that you you've got, and I'm looking at one that's says upbeat, and it's got you know a picture of a kid with two action figures, and then he's another kid playing with some kind of playset and action figure, and then it's got a big headline saying "Space Age Toys in Big Demand" with you know a wonderful article. Right next to it, it's got "Dear Abby Wants to Help, but My Nephew Smokes Pot." <laughs> <laughs> just, there's some crazy um you know article headlines in there that you pulled out as well.
7: Yeah, going through old newspaper stories. I don't know how it is in in the UK, but in the in the in the States, that the 70s was such a fun time. You get some of these r- ridiculous um, or very interesting headlines of things for sure.
1: Now, obviously, um, you know, Kenna wouldn't have predicted, couldn't have predicted how big this was going to become, but it obviously gave them confidence in new strategies, new ideas. Uh, And one of the things that I've um, struggled with for quite a while um, are things like the Battle Damage Stickers. So do you think that at times Kenna perhaps felt a bit untouchable? um, And surely releasing ships again with Battle Damage Stickers was even more of a blatant con, and this just gives them that strength to force these through.
7: That could be, you know. I think that um, ultimately, I think the reason they felt empowered to release stuff like that was the the force of star Wars for lack of the force of star Wars. How corny is that? The, the, the selling power of star Wars and the popularity of it, which had really, I mean, this is the first time a movie property had ever had this kind of impact. And it's probably the biggest, certainly the biggest toy of that era. And Kenner could just release anything. And I had Kenner people tell me this years ago, talking to them, they'd be like, they would just scoff and be like, You know, we released so much stuff that was just dodgy for Star Wars. You know, so many vehicles, like the Rebel Transport, that, like, who would want this? But it's like, well, it's Star Wars, you know, just crank it out, you know? Like, not that to say that the Rebel Transport is... It's nicely detailed, but it's really... If you were... If you had a toy line like most toy lines, you would never get down to releasing vehicles like that, that really are in the movie for three seconds and don't have that much play appeal. But the fact that it's Star Wars, you know, we just... People will buy it, you know, and people want it, and it's going to be a decent seller. It's probably going to outsell, you know, Butch and Sundance or or whatever, regardless, just because it's Star Wars. So I think that really encourages a company to sort of, I don't know if take risks is the right term, but to cut corners, you know, because there's demand for it. So if we could sell a TIE Fighter, just re-release the TIE Fighter we already released, but change the color and put some stickers in it you know why not it's free money i guess right um but if the star wars wasn't as popular as it was then i don't think they would have had that ability so
1: and do you think that obviously if they've only sold 50 percent of what they'd hoped for did that perhaps have kind of rethinking things like the dt sabers and is that where the cutting costs came from was there a little bit of nervousness at the time or are those completely unrelated
7: um, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say the DT Sabers was tied in with the early bird certificate package. My, off the top of my head, I'd have to go back and re review some of that information. But I think the DT Sabers was there was a production problem or something, and it just ended up being too difficult. And also, those things break so easily. It's like why why shoot ourselves in the foot by mm. you, everyone's just going to break it and then complain and ask for a replacement. So. I don't know if that's really related to the early bird thing. Uh, I think that's more of just an idea that was out there for the saber that somebody realized, like, this is dumb. Why are we making things more complicated than they need to be and got rid of those? That's my guess on that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, Ron, I want to thank you once again for your time. You know, you've you've done a fantastic article on the SWC blog. Um we'll share that blog post out when we release this episode because I think it deserves a lot more um views and d- discussion than than what I've seen so far.
7: All right, man. Well, I always appreciate you uh paying attention to my stuff and always just enjoy hearing your voice, Richard, cuz you're a great guy. And and I'll look forward to listening to the episode. <laughs> Thanks very
1: much, Ron. That's brilliant. Right, then moving over to our next topic then, episode 22, Runs to the Suns. So, this was a major discovery, and over the last 100 episodes, there have been a lot of major discoveries. I put a lot, I put the last 100 years in my show notes, unless someone's taking the mic there. Our, over the last 100 episodes, been a lot of discoveries, so, um, Mark, I'm gonna come to you first, because a lot of these have come through auction houses. Now, when we first started, nobody had heard of Vectis at all and you are, or have been, a toy dealer. So can you give an overview, first of all, as to how the auction houses have changed the market, Um, you know, the, the beaches, vines, and everything that's been going on over the last six, seven years?
6: I think it's fair to say that most of us sort of, sort of broke our teeth on, on things like eBay and toy fairs when it came to getting pieces for, for our collection, growing our collection. Uh, which is the old school way of doing it. Um, obviously, eBay early 2000s made that job a lot easier. So, you know, a, a lot less footwork was involved. And then, obviously, as the forums sort of came about, like Rebel Scum and uh, Star Wars Forum UK, um, the sales threads there seemed to be re- always really, really busy. And uh, then, obviously, Facebook takes over and people putting sale posts on. And then, I don't know, sort of several years ago, auction houses got their sort of hands on this area of of, of selling. And they seem to be really going from strength to strength. Like you say, Rich, uh, Vactus, some of their auctions, some of the things they've they've put through their uh, sales uh, has, has just been phenomenal. But also when you get programs like Bargain Hunt, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, one of the auctioneers was being asked the question, "What's popular? What's making big money at the moment?" And the auctioneer said, "Star Wars." So <laughs> when you're on a program like Bargain and Star Wars, vintage Star Wars stuff is actually getting mentioned, and it's becoming a, a, a real sort of buzzword. It's in the press, you know, it's in the red tops, it's in uh, on, in the media. The, the prices that some figures are fetching are making the news. So, yeah, the auction houses really have gone from strength to strength to the point now where even some of the more provincial auction houses are having specialist sales every now and again. Prop store always makes the BBC uh, on breakfast in the morning whenever they have a sale because they, you, the stuff that they sell obviously is very interesting. Some of the stores, props that have gone through their hands and it's been sold and you took it tens of thousands of pounds. Some of the fines that have, have happened over the years, you mentioned Frank Beaches. That was like a, a mythical shop that was known only to a few toy dealers and every, every now and again you'd hear of a toy, de- toy dealer trying to get in touch with the family to try and gain, gain access to the, the shop. And they were rebuked to the point there where Vectis actually did get involved, managed to get the foot in the door and um, cleared the whole shop. And uh, yeah, that, that I think what, was it a two day sale or over over a couple of auctions that Vectis went through all that stuff. And some of the, the finds in there were absolutely incredible. So yeah, the auction houses really have taken the ball and run with it quite, quite strongly uh, to the point now where a lot of. Really, really good finds uh, are, are making a waste to the auction houses and um, getting a lot of interest, as uh, we full well
1: know. Did you ever foresee a time when there would be a full day of Star
6: Wars auctions, or even two days? Yeah, I think, given the market, given the, the money that has been pumped into it by, you know, all sorts of people, it was always going to happen. Like I say, these things are peaks and troughs. Star Wars, vintage Star Wars, with the auction houses, seems to be... I mean, you've only got to look at, um, you know, when you watch the prices of some auction lots, and you think, if that was under a table at a toy fire, that wouldn't fetch 20 quid. Put it in a Vectis auction, and for some reason, it fetches 120. <laughs> it's, you know, ever likely people are using auction houses more and more to sell their collections or sell job lots. It's getting strong money. Absolutely.
1: Now, over the last you know, eight years, there've been a lot of new discoveries and many of them have come through the auction houses, but equally many haven't. So, um, Pete, Andy and Jason and Mark, we were all at the Palatoy talk and that brought some nice items out. So, um, Andy Norton, I think, do you wanna go with this one?
3: Yeah, I'll go for, go for this one. So, this, this was amazing. So, as British collectors, prototypes actually mark it's nice congratulations mark on your on your recent uh sort of pre-production items you picked up the lecture set but they're, they're a real rarity uh there's we don't really see british pre-production certainly for the action figures so i can't remember when, when was that it was pre-lockdown wasn't it three four years ago 2018 um, wasn't it 2008. So we all we all went down to uh, to Colville to see to see a talk on these and see them in real life. So a bunch of hard copies, so that the the figures that the molds are actually made from to to create the action figures we we know and love, had been found with one of the uh, the the Palatoy was it the sales rep? I can't remember the
1: guy's was it? Just trying to remember the guy's name was it was it Stuart, this one anyone remember? No, it wasn't the sales rep. it was Roger Morrison wasn't it? wasn't he was near the Tula master
3: it might, it might make sense for some reason. I thought it they'd ended up with someone else. maybe it was the it was the sales guy there, and he was a bit miffed wasn't he because he didn't have anything yeah. like it in his stuff. I think that's why so I was getting confused. And so he had all these in his loft, and I think it's been uh, discussions with Matt Fox because Matt certainly ended up with one of these, sort of telling him what the worth was, and and you could see it on all their faces that they, the the amount of money that was that was it the disco boots, uh, death, squad, uh, death squad commander that was thrown across the room, who's a production figure, and when they were told what it what it cost, the sort of look of horror on their face, but. Um, before the sort of discussions about these hard copies, I don't think they really realised the true worth. And um, but to see them turn up in Britain, to see them turn up so long after the fact, because so many of these kind of finds were made, you know, say back in the day, kind of early mid '90s by the uh, the you know the big, the big American collectors. And it's really nice seeing this turn up in uh, in Britain and actually being able to go and see them in in person. So they're all from Return of the Jedi. Uh, there was uh, Luke Skywalker in in Jedi robes, and I think there's a, there's a couple of nice pictures around showing him next to a production figure, and you can see the difference in uh, in size. Rees, Biker Scout, Low Gray. Uh, was there a was there a Weequay as well? was um, Wild well God, wasn't it? it's there's just just fantastic to see and to think that I mean I just think if it was been in my loft for these years they'd all just been disintegrated now as well. That's the that's one of these things. These things stay stay preserved somehow. I must have uh, must have good insulation in uh, in his loft. Uh, but so nice to ter- see them turn up and to see them in person.
0: The running jokes was uh, the the reason that these things have been found is that um, somebody bought. The, the, the guy who found the stuff in his loft they bought him a ladder so he could actually get to his loft I remember that kind of being touted around at the time so it's like if you are the only people out there who can't get in the loft find them a ladder if they can get in and find things
1: Now Pete, um, I think both you and I were involved in purchasing some of this but can you remember the big pick Chris Fawcett that ridiculous find <laughs> um, and how that came about
2: I, I no, I, I don't remember where he got it from. All, all I can remember is, is he he picked it up from some guy in you know, a travel across country in some one of those kind of silver bullety U uh, uh, Yeah, you get, well, U is in America, so it won't be I don't know what they call over there. But yeah, I, I can remember just getting it, and and him and a bunch of his friends were just sorting through it um i don't remember who he got it from. i just I think just buy it from a collector guy um it was celebration the, the
1: somebody somebody had went to the collecting tables at celebration and said basically this is what i've got and chris was one of the few people there who had the resources and the inclination to visit it catalog it and buy the lot it was an insane amount. It was he, he, absolutely he, insane he
2: did a spreadsheet didn't he he sent the spreadsheet mm-hmm. out and there was stuff on there which i never gonna afford and then there was But I mean, yeah, I can't remember what I bought. I bought several Empire Strikes back items. Nothing of any major value, because you know what I'm like. But it was just, it was overwhelming. I didn't think it was real at first. I thought there was some kind of like, you know, I thought he'd maybe just sell his collection off. But when he showed the pictures of the the, the U-Haul thing, oh my word. What did you buy? Do you remember what you bought from that?
1: What from him? I, I got a couple of carded figures because they were just ridiculously cheap. Yeah, and, they were. I mean, the, he, were, he was very reasonable these prices and many of the things he was basically saying, give me an offer and I'll consider it. So I got, I got some carded items, but I also got some books as well, some Star Wars adventure journals, um, which are pretty hard to get in the UK compared to, um, you know, back then and they're quite easily available in the States. But it's just one of the... Huge fines that's still out that's there. That's when and shipping. That's when shipping was cheap. Yes, that's when shipping was cheap. Absolutely. But there, there've been many big fines, haven't there? Um, p- people have located items. There was one in France, wasn't there? With uh in some warehouse in France where the was there a, a
2: barn. I'm sure it was a barn that they found. It was yes. a, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a person who owned a toy shop or something. It's all Meccano cards and okay, mm-hmm. because I remember at the time it, it was we were just starting a podcast when that broke, mm-hmm. and I, I, I was talking. I can't remember who I was talking to, but. Um, I was actually debating going over to the auction because I said to my mom, do you have a few thousand pounds to lend me because people were saying that every item in that box is going to be worth multiple thousands and I was I was, I didn't go obviously in the end but I was really tempted to go and just buy because it went for hardly anything didn't it it didn't go for a lot of money no it that, didn't, I didn't yeah. I think I'll put a link in the show notes actually um, it was it was amazing i believe every single one has gone for like that they sold straight away went for two to three to four thousand pounds each mm-hmm. um, and that's going back you know it's 2014 that was that that was yeah june 2014 it was wow
1: chris any big finds in canada over the last few years anything that's really got the canadians excited
5: well, um, I didn't uh, I think I brought it up. I forget uh, what episode it was that I was on, but, um the coolest, like random Canadian find in the last year was definitely uh, in my opinion, from uh, my buddy Mike Freeman, uh, he where he found a guy who picked up from stores in childhood uh, three of the um sort of t- uh, twelve back display backers that were all clearly Canadian and had a French uh, pyramid. GDE logo on a couple of them that uh, just i think one of the three is like you know as rare as anything gets like a photo was floating around of it you know stuff like that but there hasn't been anything like uh on the level of a warehouse find of a couple hundred carded figures that are mint or anything like that and not in the last year anyway that would be amazing
1: to find. It would be really good. Quite a big country, Canada, isn't it? So a lot, a lot, to, a lot to search through.
5: It, well, it's an illusion of a big country, you know. We're all along the U.S. border and we have more land than they do with, you know, a tenth of the population. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Andy Preston, then, so in the British collectible market, what's been the biggest thing that you've spotted in the last five, eight years or so?
4: That's a good question, Rich.
2: He stumped him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what well, what's your fantasy, uh, are you,
4: Well, it, yeah. In in terms of a big find, other than the ones we've talked about, it's hard to recall anything in the UK.
3: Well, I, I mean, perhaps, uh, but, surely it's got to be. Up there. Um, Andy, do you remember the um? There was the couple that had been left the house next door. Do you remember this one? Yes, they yes, they, I they do. so basically Joy they left the house next door. And when they looked in the garage, it was full of slightly damp bin bags full of Star Wars toys. And I think final value was was close to half a million pounds. And it was the big news because it was. I'm not sure if it was the last one. At Aston's was Aston's the one that that sold up afterwards. But yeah, it was, it was suddenly, the last one. Yeah, it was and it the was last second. auction. Really, really big thing. But the, 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 the why, why, that one's, cause these kind of stuff doesn't happen all the time, but we do, do hear about it. The fact that these ones came so close to, to being skipped, it was only cause they spoke to their son, I think, who'd, uh, who said, hang on a minute, I'll just chat to the, to uh, so an auctioneer I know and, and they were saved. Can you imagine binning half a million quid's worth of Star
6: Wars toys? The bizarre thing about that auction, though, was if the auction house had actually taken a bit more time with it, they could have easily added another £100,000 onto the value of the auction because of the way that it was done. Is that the um, one where they listed? They, Did
3: they list sort of really rare things with kind of random stuff? Is that Yeah, it
6: if, they'd have, if they'd have had like one or two people who really knew what they were talking about go in and separate the pieces that were really worth the money, um, they could have made an awful lot more money. It was such a shame. Um, I mean, great find, don't get me wrong, absolutely amazing find that this stuff is still out there in, in that sort of quantity and that kind of rarity, because there was a couple of Palatoy Vinyl Cape jowers in there, and the, the Dengar Palatoy Mailers, uh, there was, I think there was five of those, there was uh, Palatoy uh, Boba Fett Mailers as well, um, UK mailers, really rare things, and if they'd have just done a bit more homework, I think the fact that it was the last auction was probably not in its favour because it was felt like very much like a smash and grab. Um, the auction house just wanted to, you know, one last hurrah, get as much money as possible, and you know, there you go. If, but I think if any other auction house would have taken a bit more time over it, and uh, yeah, made a lot more money for them.
4: And was that
3: there was also was that the one it was a star destroyer commander that went for
6: tons? that was the death squad commander, yeah Palatoy thirty back ah, okay
3: um, so I just want to try and remember why that one so it was a 30 back one was it because that it yeah that was, was kind back, of one of yeah. the standout ones wasn't it because it went us uh, us people not in the knowledge that was whoa
6: what's, <laughs> what's going on there yeah that was that was one of the standout pieces um very very rare example.
3: Well, it's nice enough to be left a house by your neighbours, isn't it? Let alone one full of Star Wars.
4: The other uh, good find that's worth mentioning, and uh, Andy, you just mentioned that, uh, brought that back to to mind, uh, was uh, one that uh, Mark was involved in, not in terms of quantity of stuff, but certainly in terms of quality. Um, and this was something that came up at Dawson's Auctioneers uh, within the last couple of months. And they turned up a lot of... Letraset original artwork. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, these these are the notebooks and the scrapbooks and the jotters and things. Very iconic imagery done specifically for Letraset. They didn't use stock images. They uh, got their own artists to, uh, uh, to to produce the imagery. And the paintings are absolutely stunning. Came up at auction and Mark and Craig Spivey pulled resources and managed to get this lot um was it four or five pieces, Mark? I think it was five in that first lot, wasn't it? It, it was five out. in
6: the original lot, yeah. It was the
4: scrapbook with the multi um multi-characters. It was the one with the droids and Archie projecting the hologram of Princess Leia. Yeah, into the one that came passages. in the arc. Yeah, that's the one. Um and then the Leia Jota, the Chewbacca is it space notes? Space notes, yeah. And what's the other one? Uh, uh, R2, the artist's
6: pad, R2's yeah. memory bank. Yeah, memory bank.
4: That was it. That's it. So uh, those came up, and then lo and behold, next auction, they'd found another one. Um, banged in with a load of other random letra set stuff. Uh, was the C three pair one, and uh, you were lucky enough again to pick that one up, Mark. So fantastic that uh, those. We had uh, a battle over been... like
6: that, didn't we, Andy?
4: We we did, we did. I uh, yeah, I, I was underbidder on that one, but I'm very glad you got it keeping it all together. I mean, you you and Craig are are obviously the custodians of this lot now. And, you know, British prototype production stuff is so, so rare for any line. But for these pieces, you know, everyone knows, if not collects the letter set stuff. And to, to see these things coming up, it means, you know, that there is hope for other stuff still to emerge out there. But, yeah, huge congratulations to you and Craig. That was a
1: superb acquisition.
6: Thank you, mate. Thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it seemed at one point there was huge discoveries every month, and I'm sure there's plenty more to come. So moving on to the next topic, then. Episode... Okay, Rich,
2: I stop you, there, so... I'll stop you there. Let's let's have some stats. Yeah, I've got some stats for you. Right, podcast stats. Do you want to hear? Them. <laughs> Anyone can join in at any time. Right, so uh, I'll give you the big total at the end because I've now topped them all up. So we have done. This is this will be effectively our 104th podcast, I believe. Technically, because we did some Christmas specials, which we don't really count as episodes. There we go. Um, So we've done we've got five uh, episodes under three hours and several of those are the Christmas specials. We've got six at six hours. We've got 22 at five hours, 37 at four hours, 31 at three hours and two over seven hours. Which (laughs) so. So the total, Richard, the big the big number. We have done, and this is you know this this isn't far off. There might be a few seconds here and then a few minutes here and there, but we've done around about a 460 hours. And that, do you know how how many days that is?
1: Well, I know Podcast I know so. how many days were spent recording and editing. And...
2: <laughs> so, but what we've released? Anyone want to guess what's 460 hours divided by
3: 24? Come on, get your maths, get your calculators out, boys. Well, I do know that 400 <laughs> of those hours is probably just jazz, was it? <laughs> it works out as. Is
2: nineteen days. Nineteen days. I mean, which doesn't feel that long, you know, nineteen continuous days of podcasting. If you put it, so take, we haven't even done longer. a month. Of, we haven't we haven't done technically a month of podcasting yet, which I thought was I was actually quite surprised by that. But two episodes over seven hours.
0: Right, we'll have to <laughs> keep trucking today then. We'll have to make this a twelve hour.
2: <laughs> well, no, no, yeah, no, we need a bit more than that, Jason, to keep go over the days. We're not even in. We're not even twenty days of podcasting yet. But yeah, you can, you can move on with those amazing stats. It's a top 100 list of most frequently sold loose complete figures since 2014, according to StarwarsTracker.com. From least frequently sold to most. Now it's numbers 50 to 26. Straight into number 50, he's not boastful, he's not shy, but he does possess a large head. It's hand Solo with a big bolts, with 1,447 confirmed complete and complete sales. Into the Fort is at 49, and that orange jumpsuit is arguably the sexiest figure costume. It's Luke Skywalker, X-Wing pilot with 1,448 sales. At 48, it's almost the last of those darned furballs. It's Chief Chirper on 1,449 sales. At 47, the meanest-looking bad guy, the Imperial TIE Fighter pilot, on 1,456. 46, if you squint, he looks just like Richard Hutchinson. It's Hammerhead on 1,501. At 45, it's either one of two. It might be Zuckus or the Fallon guy. I think it's Zuckus. Yes, it's Zuckers. On 1,507. A forty-four, popular with the ladies with his sucky fingers. Our favorite deceased bounty hunter Greedo on one thousand five hundred thirteen. A forty-three, not sure if he has a yowl or even a voice. It's the rebel soldier on the Hoth outfit on one thousand five hundred fourteen. A forty-two, it's either one of two. It might be Fallon or the Zucker guy. I think it's Fallon. Yes, it's Fallon on one thousand five hundred fifteen. A forty-one. I forgot how many hands we've had. So many, he's barely even solo. <laughs> but it's the best one. It's Han Solo man Outfit on 1,516. At 40, he loves a tall story and leads youngsters astray on foolish missions, leading eventually to isolation and milking sea creatures. It's Ben Kenobi on 1,560. Into the 30s now, the Goon Squad continues with 39, and Klaatu on 1583. At 38, the coolest green lean killing machine is the Rebel Commando, with a frequency of 1627 sales. At 37, our Three-Eyed Jabba Barge Booze Cruise Densian, is reused with 1631 sales. At 36, not to be confused with the Rebel Commando, because he's not wearing green, is the Rebel Commander, with 1660 confirmed complete sales. A 35, he's a bounty hunter with a heart of gold. His model will care for your baby, or we might self destruct and blow it up. You'll never be sure. It's IG88 on 1663. A 34, he changes his hair colour as often as his undercrackers. Too busy staring at sons. It's Luke Farboy on 1677. A 33, Luke again. This time he's all snuggly wuggly in his warm, torn-torn innards. It's Luke Skywalker in Hoth Battle Gear on 1690. A 32, the greatest all-red toy since Almo, but far cuter, it's the Emperor's Royal Guard on 1,698. A 31, likes hanging around on skiffs and prodding bouncing Jedi Knights, it's Weequay with 1,699. A 30, the Emperor's Wife, it's the Imperial Dignatory with 1,715. Into the 20s. And at 29, it's the guy wearing the upside down mixing bowl on his head. It's the Death Squad Commander on 1765. At 28, he'll do whatever you say, because he's got the force resistance of jelly in his brain. It's Bib Fortuna on 1806. At 27, Ewoks are eyeing up these helmeted guys for potential drums from the off. It's the Biker Scout on 1819 sales, and at 26, his disguise was as cunning as Baldrick wearing a slug on his lip and pretending to be Charlie Chaplin. It's Lando Calrissian in Skiffgar disguise on 1872 confirmed completed sales.
1: Right then, so moving on to episode 31, 20th Century Fox. A look at collecting away from the toys and how beyond the toys has changed the landscape. So Jason, I'm going to ask you to lead him with this one because I'm getting sick of hearing my own voice now. So certainly, you know, when I first started uh, collecting, I was only uh, only interested in the action figures. Um, You went down the cardboard route, others have gone down other routes. So what's been happening over the last 20 years and bring people in as you need them.
0: Initially, when people start collecting they're like, "Oh I need to do a loose run of figures they do that they, they, they may do mint on cards they may then look at vehicles and playsets and stuff like that. but there's a massive world of stuff beyond that and um with my with my collecting, I, I kind of looked at all the things that I had when I was a kid and I, I kind of once I'd kind of like filled all the holes that I had to do with you know collecting palladium card backs and mint on cards and all the vehicles and stuff. I was like wouldn't it be nice if you know that that you know that little stormtrooper kind of notebook that I had from you know from from LetraSet wouldn't it be nice if I if I could collect a full set of those and I used to have I used to have the little uh, maths tin with all the you know projectors and set squares in it for you know for um, Helix and it so. thought, nice if I could collect all those. Well, I kind of started off and said, well, anything that I had as a kid I'd try and get a full set on. So, you know, I started off, I was doing Helix and Letra set and then and then I kind of like got the situation. off, well, I do like collecting this stuff and then I just started looking at all the UK lines and just trying to collect full sets of those kind of things. So I've kind of moved on to HCF stationery and I've got an entire entire kind of... Um, bookcase thing dedicated to that I've probably only got about half of it and then you know other UK collectibles like that and there's just there's a big wealth and you know variety of stuff to collect there and it's all really interesting you know so I mean Andy Preston you've, you've obviously got a much much bigger collection of this stuff than I have because your, your focus is obviously everything that was made in the UK can you, can you chime in with you know your thoughts on Beyond the
4: Toys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I loved all this stuff as a kid. I wasn't just into the action figures. I had the stationery and uh, uh, all sorts. And that's really what's inspired my collecting of the Beyond the Toys stuff. Going back over the last 10, 20 years, I think there has been a definite change in terms of the amount of people that are collecting this stuff. And, of course, that's led on to a knock-on effect on the prices.
0: Tell me about it.
4: Absolutely. And I think that's because people have often gone down a very similar route in collecting. The action figures are, I guess, the first love of the vast majority of collectors. So you get your 92 action figures, or however many it is. You get your vehicles,
2: um, yeah, I mean, people have collected their loose figures, but I, I think it, it's, it's sooner than that. I think people are looking at some of the actual figures and going, "I'm not going to collect the actual because they're getting so damn expensive." I mean, it's, well, well, I don't I mean, have ridiculous. the last
0: seen, and I'm, I'm, never, I'm I don't think I'm going to get the last 17 because they're just ridiculously priced
2: now. Yeah, yeah, I think that has to be taken into account. I think people are turning to other things because they are. You know, we've got more. I yeah, this sounds really disrespectful and Mark will probably try and shoot me. But, uh, you know, sometimes the, 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 this sort of stuff is, is far more affordable and cheap and, you know, slightly tatty. And we, we've talked about it on Licensee. You know, some of the stuff is so much fun to get hold of. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I think the, the, the action figures are really, really turn people, like I say, in two prongs. It's either too expensive to get into it and finish off your figures, like the last seventeen has become ridiculous. Like I said, it's it's now six and a half thousand pounds to get a reasonable loose collection and you you're probably going north of that if you start getting to Varner Cape Jowers and, and blue snaggle tooth and all that sort of stuff. You're probably talking ten thousand pounds. So that's far too much money for a lot of people. So they are going down the the hey, you know what? You know, I like stormtroopers. I'm gonna collect stormtrooper stuff and buy everything
4: absolutely and as with the action figure stuff if you're buying sort of cheap loose beaters you know if, if you if you're buying loose erasers and uh, notepads and things like that then you can build up a pretty decent collection reasonably cheaply if on the other hand you are after the stuff that uh, perhaps jason and mark and myself are now uh, which is the store displays um, at the you know pre-production stuff and the real rarities there's a lot of people chasing that now and the, the the prices have gone up accordingly and you know you you see things coming up on eBay and on the auction sites going for 10 times the amount that it would have done perhaps 10 years ago and you know that that market really, really has taken off. But the other flip side of that, of course, is with the value has also come the, you know, the the interest in these things. And people are bringing this stuff out of the woodwork, knowing now that it can sell for a decent price. You know, you you you'll see a couple of sales of a particular item, and then, uh, you know, that will bring a few more out. People think I I I can uh, cash in on this, and the knowledge base of this stuff is growing considerably. You know, certainly I'm always learning about this stuff because there's constantly new items coming up for sale uh, or people who've bought new items and looking to share them on Facebook and on the, uh, the groups and things. And, you know, that that's a really exciting part of the hobby. You know, the action figure line has largely been done to death. There, uh, you know, that there are still new discoveries, but, uh, I guess they're few and far between, whereas with the Beyond the Toys stuff, there is always new stuff out there. Um, You know, I'm constantly adding to my wanted lists, and it's really exciting just knowing what was out and when it was out and how it was promoted. You know, the the store displays, I'm waiting for a new Airfix store display to come through from the last Vectors auction that I never knew existed. Um, And uh, really pleased to get the high bid on that one. You know, just 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 one example. Mark, anything other than the letter set artwork that you have picked up recently? Any uh, anything exciting in the beyond
6: the toys world that you're aware of? Not off the top of my head. I mean, I'm always adding bits and pieces, but I, I, I'm going to add to the equation on this that um it's also about the aesthetics to me. A lot of this stuff. Design-wise, looks beautiful. I mean, nothing looks like the Helix range, for example, with that red and yellow logo and the different characters on the artwork. looks fantastic when you've got a bit of Helix together in in, in a little collection. Set that next to the letter set, which, again, looks completely different. Uh, the Clyro stuff, the artwork on the boxes is, is, is just stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. And you don't need a lot of these items to make a collection look really Interesting when you've got it on display. You know, when you've got like a dozen carded figures all lined up together, you know, once you've seen one Luke Skywalker on a, on a card, you pretty much see them all. Whereas the more ephemeral stuff, the more beyond the toys kind of items, when you get a little collection like that together, it looks much more interesting. In my opinion, and as an illustrator and as a graphic artist, that's what draws me to it the most is how it looks, the design and what it looks like on a shelf. So in, in those terms, I do find, don't get me wrong, I love the toys. I have a real, you know, close connection with those things as a kid but also have a connection with the stationery and the confectionery side of things that the, the stuff that gets thrown away and that's why it's so rare and it's so hard to come by is you know you, you tend to cl- cl- keep all your toys don't you you get gets boxed up boxed up and put in the loft and you know it's it's kept for years to come whereas a pack of felt tip pens you don't keep those once they're used they get slung don't they they get put in the bin and the same with the confectionery. Once the display box is done and dusted with the news agents, it goes in the bin. So for any of these kinds of items to survive, again, is it's quite unusual. You're absolutely right.
4: Um, and some of these things, as you said, the confectionery boxes, walls, sausage wrappers, uh, a lot of the display pieces are far rarer than a double telescoping lightsaber or a blue snaggletortle or anything like that. You know, there's a lot of them that only one or two or a handful exist. Let's
0: to believe that uh, I've got a set of uh, ten, 10 Helix uh, felted pencils. Uh, there are less of those than uh, people have walked on the moon, so I've been told.
6: So uh, there you go. Well, I mean, if I want to buy a vinyl cape jowett, I can go on eBay right now or Facebook, and I reckon I could source one within an hour or two. No problem. If I want to buy a Trebor um, 1977 bar box, display box, that I, in the 10 years I've been back in collecting, I've not I've only seen two, and I missed out on both of them by nanoseconds.
4: Yeah, I mean, it is a really underrated area of collecting. I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, Mark, in terms of the artwork, particularly the early 77, 78, 79 stuff, the different companies... Had their own artists, their own uh, graphic designers, and there's a charm and a quirkiness about the artwork of some of those products that you just don't see in the later line, um, the, particularly the, uh, the the later Empire of the Jedi stuff, where they were using stock images provided by Lucasfilm. So, you know, that that's uh, that's a, a a really exciting um, way to collect. Uh, The other thing is we mentioned earlier about the focus collecting, and it's a great way for a focus collector as well to expand their collection. You know, if you're a Princess Leia collector or a Han Solo collector, uh, once you look away from the action figures, there's so much stuff that's got these characters on there. And, you know, putting a display together of Princess Leia stuff, whether it be pencil cases or bubble baths or erasers or whatever it may be, it looks superb all together. R2-D2, again, I've seen some fantastic collections focused on R2 stuff. And, you know, the the, the shape of R2 really lends itself to all sorts of products. I think um,
2: also, Andy, um, in those early days, and we discussed this many times, and Mark, you probably see it a lot in the design and jason as well um the, it was kind of the wild west of of getting a getting a licensee together or licensees together because we've heard you know we've over the years we've covered stories i think Clara was the one that sticks out in my mind where the guy just had an idea about shampoo bottles went down to 20th century fox uh pitched his his ideas and they went yeah that sounds good and uh they you know it, it kind of went from there so there was no particular like branding document you just say right you know, use this logo and this is you know use these guys and here's some artwork maybe or get it off the stills and just go for it and i think that's why we we often see don't we the the amount of variation between the logos positioning logos the, the usage of you know people in masks very rarely do you know do we see a lot of you know outside of uh, some licensees do we see anything with a human face on it, it you know it's it's a real uh, amazing um, <laughs> amalgamation of stuff and i think it's a wonderful area to collect in, especially the star wars stuff the star wars branded stuff but yeah it seemed to get a bit more uniform when it got to return of the jedi they obviously got their act together and you know they, it was like right well, use this logo in this way although we do see a couple of you know liberties being taken but it is i, I think it is it's such a rich source of star wars stuff
6: Well, I think what we tend to forget is 1977 Star Wars hits, you know, it it was a a trailblazer in so many different ways. But one of the things that often gets overlooked was marketing, film franchises. Before then, there was only things like Planet of the Apes that had even sort of scratched that surface. There'd been nothing like Star Wars. So all of a sudden you're given a, a franchise which appeals to so many different people on so many different levels the 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm had no idea how to control it. It was completely loose. It was chaos. All these different companies just basically being allowed to go off and let their creative juices flow. And this is why you get the, the, the likes of Helix, Letroset, Clyro, all these different brands creating really cool, different-looking things. Whereas now now what we've got is the marketing departments and the bean counters all sort of uh, they've honed their skills now and everybody gets uh, a marketing bible this is how you do it the, the text must be this big you must use these colors you can only use that logo and everything has a generic look to it whereas back in the 70s it, it, it was like the wild west
4: not to mention of course the bootlegs which uh, you know completely unauthorized, but again, there's some lovely quirky bits in there. If you look at some of the ceramics and some of the T-shirts, uh, and uh, the you know stationery bits, coloring sets, there's some really really great um, collectibles in the, uh, the the bootleg market uh, from the Beyond the Toy stuff. Uh, you know, again, I know you've got some yourself, Mark. I have, yeah, and. Um,
6: it, like I say, the, you say, know, the artistic license that's been used and has been given uh, is uh, it allows for some really great things. I mean, look at those um, Darth Vader boxing puppets. I mean, they, they're just mental. <laughs> it's just crazy things. They would never get through Lucasfilm, and yet there they are.
2: It's a top 100 list of most frequently sold loose complete figures since 2014, according to StarWarsTracker.com from least frequently sold to most. Now it's numbers 25 to 11. At 25 he's sometimes smiling, sometimes not. It's as if he was flirting too much and someone slapped his teeth clean off. It's Lando Calrissian with 1,901 in sales twenty-four, she loves giving blind guys a snog whilst wrongins hide behind a curtain watching. It's Princess Lea Organa in Boosh disguise with 1,956 sales. At twenty-three, this is the last Ewok on the list. I wish in reality it was like ever, ever. It's low grey with that silly hat on 1,994 sales. At twenty-two, the Sand People are singular and plural and all at the same time. They are single file and they are Borg. Resistance is futile. Maybe let's call them the Tuscan Raiders with 2015 sales. At 21, THE call of stormtroopers could actually shoot at things whilst wearing skirts in the snow. It's the Imperial Stormtroopers in Hoth Battle Gear with 2,148 confirmed sales. Into the top 20 now. Don't get these guys to guard your palace gates as Jedi's like strangling them for no reason. Horrid Jedi. It's everyone's lovable fur panted porcine protectors. It's the Camorian Guard on 2,167 sales. At 19, he may be wearing cloth or vinyl. Many prefer a good vinyl. It's the Jawa with their dinky blasters on 2170 sales. At 18, I wonder if they grow their body parts back. Anyone know? It's Bosk Bounty Hunter on 2176 sales. At 17, you can pull this guy apart and put him in a bag and carry him around all day like that pet spider you had on a matchbox. Oh, maybe that was just me. It's C-3PO with removable limbs at 2202 sales. At 16 it's Luke and Leia's dad. He was hoping for a nice family day out but his daughter made him angry so he had to blow up a planet and cut off Luke's hand. It's Darth Vader with 2,246 sales. At 15 when you fail to detect that guy from Naboo walking around in a cloak being naughty isn't the big bad guy, then kills all your friends, it's time to run off and hide with a variety of coloured snakes. It's Yoda with 2,264 sales. A fourteen, he cut himself shaving, so his wife Manaru bandaged him up a little excessively. It's Dengar on 2,287 sales. A thirteen, unlucky for some, unlucky if you're driving an Atat when rebels work out how to use a tow cable. It's the Atat driver on 2,784 sales. A twelve, everyone's favourite furry thing. No, not a Tribble. It's Chewbacca with 3,337 sales. And at eleven, has this guy been officially replaced? Can we throw him away now? It's Sebastian Shaw. I mean, it's Anakin Skywalker with 3,614
1: sales. Right then, so moving on to episode 82 Walkers on the North Ridge, where we spent a lot of time talking about the future of Star Wars. And since we released our first episode, we've had a lot of movies, we've had a lot of hours of quality and not so quality content on Disney Plus. So I want to spend a bit of time what our thoughts are on Disney Plus, look at, Lucasfilm look at and Limits releases in the cinema, and what are the successes what have been the misses and what do we think the future is going to be and so chris i want to come to you first can we just talk about the movies initially so the sequel trilogy as a whole um what do you think they did well what do you think they did not so well is there a deliberate reason do you think for a long pause between the last little batch of movies and whatever we're going to get next um what are your thoughts on that
5: Oh, well, I'm glad you came to me first so you can have someone a little bit more positive to wrap it up. You know, I, I'm, I, I remember very distinctly the overwhelming feeling of dread and sadness that, that I felt in 2012 when uh, Lucasfilm was sold to Disney. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm glad to report that in my estimation, it's only been about two thirds as bad as I thought it was going to be. I don't like any of the films they've done apart from Rogue One. And even Mandalorian, I find it very hit or miss. I like the first season, but as, as much as a general, uh, naysayer as I've been, I really will admit when I'm wrong. And I've, and I know it's not even a universal opinion in here, but I really think, uh, Andor is the best thing they've done so far. And I don't know what the reason is that that got such a level of care and attention that something like Obi-Wan wouldn't have, uh, I think that's almost the most maddening part about it. The the, the It seems like one was handled with such reverence and, and the rest were not. And uh, I, I, whatever it is, I hope they figure out their cause for that formula and move forward in a similar fashion.
3: Chris, was, I was listening to Rebel Force Radio, um, I think it was the last one, and they were talking, pretty much saying what you just said then, but the the fact was that Obi-Wan was recorded during covid Was one of the big was one of the big reasons why it just looked cheaper. I don't know whether that's true, but that was that was what they were saying there.
5: I I guess so. I'm just even like I could I'm saying pull the visuals out of it completely. Just look at the script, and there's just such a level of like literally somewhere in that script, there's action direction which says Obi Wan smuggles Leia out of the base underneath his jacket.
3: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. No, don't get me wrong.
5: <laughs> more, but that was it.
3: I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. It wasn't something I'd thought before. Yeah. And certainly, yes, yeah, so the, the, the the cheapness of it, I could see that being being a factor. I don't know.
5: Yeah. yeah. And, there's, and, you know, I think there is something real about the over-reliance on the volume. Like, I don't think the volume is inherently a bad thing. I think it's just going to take a long time for production crews to understand how to use it in a in natural way, like... I reattempted I attempted to rewatch the book of Boba Fett recently, and you can really feel it almost feels like a stage play, like characters enter and exit by just sort of running 10 feet in one direction as almost there's very few physical references to structures in many scenes. And you can just tell that they were sort of in a nebulous, flat environment. And they like, you know, it's like Black Kersantan will run away and they would have seen him for Two kilometers, he just runs off into the desert. Basically, it's just almost like there's a whole lot of that throughout, and it's like they have to they have to just sort of find ways to work with it that feel natural because Andor is just better in every conceivable way.
1: Um, Andy Preston, you're you're quite old school, um, with your movies and things. So the sequel trilogy. Did Disney get it right or did they just cater for a different generation and we're not part of that generation?
4: No, I I think they dropped the ball completely, Rich. And I think the failure was not having an overarching story planned out from the start. By all means, give the different movies in the trilogy to a different director. Uh, by all means do a slightly different spin, but Really, to go into those movies without having any idea as to where the overall story, the overall plot was going, was a huge mistake, in my opinion. I thought The Force Awakens was good. I enjoyed that. Yes, it was very derivative of the original Star Wars, but it had the fun, it had the action, it had the excitement. It felt like Star Wars to me. Um, And, uh, you know, that... That movie I can watch and rewatch again. The Last Jedi, there are certainly bits in it that I really appreciate. Um, you know, the cinematography, a lot of the uh, um, a, a lot of the scenes, acting very good. But I don't think Ryan Johnson really grasped what Star Wars was about. I think he was trying to do something different. Now, Tony Gilroy's done that with Andor recently. But that's a standalone piece outside of the trilogy, and uh, andor I think is fantastic. Last Jedi for me did not work at all. I really didn't like what they did with Luke. Uh, I thought a lot of it was really so far away from what one would expect from Star Wars, uh, that it, you know, it, it really doesn't appeal to me as a movie. I, I really don't want to rewatch it. Um, and then you know rather than perhaps being brave and trying to continue to sort of pick up from where Ryan Johnson had left off and, you know, to, to strike out in that bold new direction. J.J. J. Abrams came back in and they'd obviously listened to the gripes of the fans and the Rise of Skywalker. You know, it's just such a mishmash, such a mess trying to pick up the pieces after The Last Jedi. Uh, trying to pull some of those threads back into place from The Force Awakens, which Ryan Johnson had either ignored or completely overwritten, and, you know, trying to finish off the trilogy and make a coherent whole of the whole thing. But, you know, it just didn't work. They missed a complete trick in not getting the original gang back together. That's what The Force Awakens should have been. You know, Han, Luke, and Leia offer one last adventure with, you know, in meeting and perhaps introducing the new cast to then take the story forward. But on the whole, m- my big regret is that it was such a wasted opportunity. Had it been handled right, you know, it could have really launched Star Wars for a new generation. I know they've gone on and had successes subsequently with the likes of Rogue One, with the likes of The Mandalorian, uh, with Andor. But uh, you know that those those three movies, and I think the Last Jedi in particular, really killed Star Wars at the movies. You know, we've we've not seen anything since. We see projects being greenlit and then cancelled. Goodness knows when the next Star Wars movie we're going to see at the cinema will be, or what it will be. You know, it's it, it's it's such a shame that it was all so very badly handled. And uh, yeah, that's that's my take on it. At least we've still got the original trilogy to look back on.
1: Mark, Andy was just about to burst into the There, You could hear the emotion coming through in his voice. Did you dream for one second that when The Force Awakens was announced, they would do what they did with Luke and we would never get the three characters together at least to carry the story on for a little bit?
6: I, I can't agree more with what has been said already. I, I think it, it just echoes my sentiments about exactly what Disney have done with Star Wars. And yeah, I, I mean, last Jedi Luke's portrayal uh, Mark Hamill himself said it. He says he disagreed with what we were trying to do with the character. know, when you've got somebody like Mark Hamill, who's was passionate and, you know, uh, loves the Luke Skywalker character and the, the Star Wars legacy is telling you that And you're going against that grain and you're not listening. Um, you know, you've got to be prepared to a bit, for a bit of backlash I found the films, the first three films, uh, too derivative of the originals. The casting was, uh, whilst the, the, the great actors, I just found them, I just found it, so, they were shoehorned together. There wasn't a natural rapport like there was with the original three characters. That's not something you can replicate easily. It just felt like they were trying to emulate the original trilogy and and, and you know, throw in some new elements, and it just didn't work. Uh, it's such a shame, and as has been mentioned, you know, it was a missed opportunity. I agree. Rogue One is the best film they've done so far. I, you know, again, I agree. It's something that I can watch time and time again. That's to me, that's the benchmark of a, a decent Star Wars film. Something you can revisit and s- sit happily through, which is why I get so much joy out of the original trilogy. It's, you know, <laughs> I've lost count how many times I've watched those. The TV series, now Disney Plus is in existence. They're less likely to put films out because it, it costs an awful lot of money. And it's always a gamble, whereas with the TV aspects of it now, they, they've got to fill that channel with content. So I think their focus is going to be now producing more things like The Mandalorian and or Kenobi, series like that, because They've, they've got to fill it with content. And also, they've seen they're having more success with the TV side of things than they are with the films. So if you're in charge of a big corporation, you look at the facts and the figures and the, the reviews and responses, you're going to go with where you're strongest. Uh, so I, I do feel as though Disney's output in the foreseeable is going to be through Disney+. Plus. Pete, a
1: long time ago, and I'm probably thinking about 1996, 1997 here, I was on a forum called uh, called JediNet, and on that forum, somebody had posted um, about the Zorn trilogy being an amazing new movie, and somebody else came up and said, are you for real? It's a great book, but it would be a terrible movie. And I think that's what we're getting now. I think we're getting some great stories that cannot translate into movies. They are excellent as episodic content like the Mandalorian and Obi-Wan and and things like that. Yes, you could argue that there there may be direction issues, etc. So do you think and pretty much agree with Mark in that Disney streaming content is the way to go for Star Wars? And if new movies do need to come out... I mean, perhaps is it the end of the two and a half hour movie of Star Wars? Do we need it anymore?
2: Yeah, I, I, I do think there's a bigger picture kind of thing here because we can now reflect on Disney and their acquisition. I mean, personally, I don't. You know, I was brought up on the Marvel comics and you know, trashy, crappy films. It's not a. you know, I brought up on trashy, crappy films, and that's what we're getting now. And and I I do enjoy them because I can dive in, watch a couple of scenes, and then kind of bail out again. So you know, I don't have. I don't get too upset about the films. Yes, it was definitely a missed opportunity with the, the original characters, but they made a mess of it. But if you look at the whole Disney acquisition, I mean, it seems now that, that the picture was that they, they got Star Wars, they didn't want to focus, because they probably thought it had been exhausted, on the legacy characters. And if you look at like, some of the animated shows, I think at Rebels especially, when that started, it was really struggling until they started bringing back legacy characters into the shows to give it a, a bump. And when they realized that that's what people wanted, you probably saw someone go in in the office of Disney. Oh, I think we made a bit of an arse of ourselves here because they've tried to do it. And they've tried to introduce a new type of Star Wars and completely kill off. I mean, they they were saying it in the films, you know, kill the past. That's what the whole message was. Kill the past. Kill your dad. Kill Han Solo. Kill these guys off because we've got these new guys. And when they opened up the theme park, you know, a star Wars theme park, I used to dream of a star Wars theme park as a kid. And they've made an app that they have made a star Wars theme park. I do not want to go to, you know, I mean, and my brother, we dreamed about taking his kid to the star Wars theme park, going on the indoor rides, driving a millennium Falcon, sitting in an X wing. And you've got none of that sort of stuff. You've just got um, a, a millennium Falcon ride, lots of shops, and, you know, some, you know, Force Awakens related kind of rides, which, you know, uh, that's not going to get me to go over there and spend two grand on a hotel for a night. It's just it, the whole of the Disney Star Wars acquisition. It seems they had a they had a kind of a plan um, to do away with the legacy and go their own way so they could you know get a hold of, of, of what they owned. But unfortunately they realised that the, the massive fan base that Star Wars has still adores the legacy characters. And they missed the trick with not having, you know, the print the, the holy trinity of characters in those films to kick it off. And I think if they'd kicked it off, it would have flowed beautifully through everything. But I mean, you, I mean we you had elements of the of the Zahn kind of trilogies, didn't you? You you had you had the Emperor coming back, you had um the possibilities of luke kind of like you know moving away from the jedi order may be sort of you know uh, more information on the force and stuff and they've they've kind of got those themes into the new films but haven't really explored them i mean i mean a lot of what happened in those first three films that we all the three films that we've had should really have all happened in the first film and then kind of gone forward um but there's, yeah, there's so m- many stories out there. And when Disney again cut off the expanded universe, they they said to people, you know, that sent out a really negative message to people because again, they wanted to control what was being released. And um, I, I, I like you, Richard. I I collect some of the comics, and uh, some of the stories are really, really poor, really lackluster. There's no depth to them. Um, I collect uh, the Afro series. And the first series is really good. The second series has become almost like a little soap opera. Um, and it's a really poor one. And again, you, you, they don't want to kind of commit themselves to giving characters too much information because they might put it into a TV series. Or they might put it into a future animated pro- um, product. So they have, they're kind of like airing to caution too much. I think the story group has a lot to answer for because they've kind of like held... the the progression of the stories we had in the eu they've held it by the tail and it's not allowed to gallop forward and and buck its hips and eat from a different trough and all that sort of stuff it's it's too controlled it's too it's too safe it's far too safe they're trying to please everybody and unfortunately they're pleasing not enough people um and it's a real shame because um I think it has been some good stuff. I think, I think the, the Bad Batch is brilliant. I think some of Rebels was excellent when it got going, when they put legacy characters in the, the, the end of the Clone Wars is decent. I think that as a as a as a place to 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 really dip into the Clone Wars series is absolutely fantastic. There's some unbelievably brilliant story arcs. Um if 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 any of you guys have watched any of the Clone Wars, I would suggest getting on Disney Plus, following some of those story arcs, it is absolutely genius. Some of the Mando stuff, brilliant. Uh, some of the scenes of Boba Fett, excellent. But overall, the the show was a, a mishmash. It it got confused. It was going in certain places. I think a lot of that should have been in the Obi Wan show, and they 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 switched it out and made a mess of so it. I think I think Boba Fett Obi Wan have, have been victims of COVID, unfortunately, as we've already said. They they have they have suffered from probably too many hands on because of Mando series. They're trying to create this Mando universe of characters, and they haven't kind of got it right. They maybe just need to to go on with Mando series on its own and not try and fit it into every other show. Um, because the, you know the best part of that was the Mando episodes; those two were brilliant. But overall, Rich, it, it's you know the, the 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 future of Star Wars. I, I think it, I think we're still at probably the end of phase one of of Disney Star Wars. We are, we're coming to a realisation that if you disrespect the legacy characters, legacy stories, you are going to lose your fan base. And it's very, very hard to create a new one because there's so much other stuff out there to compete with it.
1: And Jason, if I go to Disneyland, I want to see the cantina. I want to sit down in the cantina and have a drink. I want to walk a Star Destroyer set. I want to do things that you see bigger and better at Celebration. Disney have made a conscious decision not to go down that route with this galactic outpost or whatever they're calling it now. Is a lot of this Disney arrogance, and they're not going to admit that they've got you know billions of dollars wrapped up in things that hasn't worked, and um, and they'd rather pause it now to have another kind of reset and go back down a different tangent.
0: I think I mean I I've been I've been to Galaxy's Edge and um yeah it's it's very focused on um the new the new sequels as opposed to the, the prequel stuff and well not the prequel stuff, the original films. And they've they've kind of you know they've drawn up their five, ten year plan and you know, once you're five years into your ten years plan, it's quite difficult to kind of turn around and do something else. I mean it you know, in terms of Galaxy's Edge it would mean Closing it down, demolishing a load of stuff, and putting other stuff up. You know, once they've already, you know, they've already committed to the, the resort and rides and all the rest of the stuff that they've put together already. I mean, they're already. Um, there's two Galaxy's Edges at the moment. They're building another one in Paris, uh, Euro Disney. The other thing is they all look the same. I mean, I, I was quite amazed by um, when I went through the the Disney Castle in. Anaheim and it was exactly the same as it was in Euro Disney to the point where the rides were all exactly in the same place and they were exactly the same rides. There was there was just no way you could tell which one you were in, particularly. Will they learn from the mistakes and will they go back and do these things? They might do. I mean they they, they may kind of go, Okay, well, you know, once once the kind of interest in in the sequels has kind of waned, they may they may say, Okay, we're gonna close these things down and repurpose them of the original films and wouldn't that be great to see as you say all those all those classic those classic scenes from the early films if some of that was kind of replicated as a as an immersive experience and you know it would be great i mean i've done a couple of immersive spe- experiences one was um, secret cinema did uh, a very 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 good empire strikes back one where the immersive experience was basically Star Wars and then Led you in to go and see the Empire Strikes Back Film and you know the interaction You had there with You know the original Star Wars characters And the whole thing was just So much better In terms of how it was done Than uh, anything Disney Have done so um, yeah they should They should be looking at Experiences like that and, and Saying well how can We take stuff like that and Make it bigger and better
5: Jason, I think you will absolutely see Galaxy's Edge sort of rebranded as either a general non-timeline specific area or an original trilogy-focused area. Rich, you said when you introduced the Galaxy's Edge topic that when you go to a Star Wars theme park, you want to see a cantina, you want to see a Star Destroyer bridge, and you want to see the Millennium Falcon. They have all three of those things. And I think it was purely by design that they, instead of picking a sequel trilogy planet, they made up a sort of new general sort of smuggler's moon. Because if you think about what they, what would they really have to change to, re, re, to shift the timeline of the park, the radar dish on the Millennium Falcon, the Falcon ride itself is essentially a video just like Star Tours, so they could completely change that uh, rather easily. And a whole lot of the other stuff doesn't really have to change that much. They got a Star Destroyer bridge that's virtually identical to what you'd see, see in *The Empire Strikes Back*, except for they've got First Order characters all over it. But you know, you can you can find it. There's a picture of a very original trilogy-looking Star Destroyer bridge there. I think it's a foregone conclusion they'll they'll rebrand it somehow. Lately, they used to say that it all takes place at a very specific point in canon. They've they've started getting more relaxed with that lately because you've had. The mandalorian and grogu walking around there and you know if we're to believe that that takes place 30 years after the mandalorian it'd be a little bit odd if he was still walking around with the little baby in the exact same costume uh, as he was 30 years prior so they're getting a little looser with it i think you'll eventually you'll see a round radar dish on that falcon
0: i think the other thing with with the baby yoda grogu is um i don't know what they originally planned for that character but given its success, it was like, we cannot harm a hair. On, not that he's got much hair, but you, there's no way that we can do anything that would upset the fan base with this character, or they will storm Disneyland and raise it to the ground.
2: That has been a cash cow, hasn't it? I mean, Grogu has been the cash cow of the Disney Star Wars era, I think. you must be raking. I mean, you see merchandise everywhere. It's constant. Um, and of course, he's going to stay in baby form for <laughs> forever. He's going to get old for a while. Um, I wonder if they contemplate killing him off. But to, I didn't realise that actually Disney Plus had um, taken about five billion a year. I mean, how? I mean, that's all from subscribers. Otherwise, they had so many subscribers as well. Have, I mean, millions, hundreds of millions of subscribers, which is insane amounts, really. So they are really raking in the cash, so they can afford to to make mistakes. On these films.
0: That's about how much money um, uh, Avatar 2's got to make to uh, break even, isn't it?
2: Oh, crikey, Crikey. And finally, the top 10 most frequently sold Star Wars vintage action figures from 2014, when we started the podcast, until today, according to StarWarsTracker.com. <laughs> Number 10, if instructed, he'll torture your inanimate objects. He'll tell off your phone, scold your toaster, or be mean to your fridge. What a guy. It's 88 on 3,634 sales. And number 9, lost your defender at the Football World Cup? Stick this guy in defence, he's got loads of legs and will keep that ball away. Take note, England, it's FX7 on 3,785 sales. And number 8, with fuel so expensive, Get yourself one of these gonk droids. Comes with 300 USB charging points and says gonk every 30 seconds. It's hypnotic. It's the power droid with 3,802 sales. And number seven, only the second humanoid in the top 10. Another Ben Kenobi lie. These guys are only good with flamethrowers. So if you need some leaves setting on fire, give the Empire a call and tell them there's an elderly pair of moisture farmers hiding in it. The Imperial Stormtrooper with 3,845 sales. At number 6, this guy should have been C-3PO, way cooler, but decided to hang out on an artificial planet sized killing ball and sand crawlers, weirdo. It's the Death Star Droid with 4,725 sales. And at 5, he's not rare, he's the last humanoid, however his price rises, as does his frequency it seems. Everyone's favourite ex-member of the Tuscans, Boba Fett with 4,850 sales. And number 4, is the bucket on legs with the blue thing, R2-D2 scope with 5,235 sales. Now with a bronze medal at 3, the red bucket on legs, it's R5-D4. The silver medal goes again to a bucket on legs. This time without a sticky-up thing, it's R2-D2, solid dome with 5,653 sales. And the gold medal, which is appropriate of the number 1 most frequently acquired best-selling vintage Star Wars figure, is C-3O with 5,741 confirmed sales, selling around two figures a day for the last eight years.
1: Right then, guys, moving on to our last topic. This was a sneaky one that's been shoved in the show notes at the last minute. Let's chat about fan production, 3D printing, all of the customs that's coming out more recently. Um, We've seen some excellent examples of custom items. We've talked about many. On the show, Mark. I know you're pressed for time, so we'll come to you first. Um, Mark, I think what I'd like you to talk, and possibly any Preston or Jason to join in with this one, is some of the items that have come from Palatoy Lee, um, as we call him, and um, some of his amazing Palatoy What If projects.
6: Yeah, so he's active on the Palatoy group actually, and has asked me for advice on several occasions on how best to replicate certain things. Uh, for his play sets uh, and he's created and i think andy and jason you've actually got a couple of these pieces haven't you um uh, what is it death star command post yeah death
0: Death star command center so it's got like a little room with a kind of console on it where uh, all the imperials are and then at the side it's got the circular tractor beam controls where ben turned the tractor beam Mm -hmm. off
6: So he's actually used sort of vac plastic and cardboard, hasn't he? It looks like the vintage ones. It it does. It's fantastic what he's done.
4: Yeah, I've got that one, and I've also got his Echo Base uh, medical room. With, so you got the back-to-tank and the, the uh, backdrops, of all the medical equipment, and uh, the sort of vacuum form base with bits of snow on the floor, and uh, yeah, again, really, really good, very, very much in character with what Palatoi were doing back in the day, and uh, yeah, I just, I just love them, fabulous.
6: I just think it, it, it just it's testament to uh, you know fans using their remi- uh, using their imagination to uh, create stuff that obviously wasn't done. By the the toy companies at the time and filling the gaps. I think that's what it's all about, isn't it? Um, I mean, there's there's varying degrees of success, um, but I think Lee's stuff uh, is he's shown that he's managed to capture that vintage era uh, style really well.
0: Yeah, I think it's the it's the, be- it's the best stuff that's come along so far. I would say, and, and you know, vintage era nostalgia that's somebody's put together
4: certainly certainly playset wise yes and uh, if he ever gets his best spin playset off the ground which is basically a reimagining of the Palatoid death star but uh, best spin world that would be awesome i mean
2: i I, I put this this topic in here really really. i insert it because i think you know there's been some really good projects i mean some i know by people with unscrupulous kind of uh, histories but i i would love to see all those guys doing repro and wasting their time on repro nonsense if they just like i'd almost like an amnesty to, them to step up and say all right i'm going to burn all my repro crap and what i'm going to do is i'm going to help you know this kind of community you know, go forward which is making customs which is so much fun you know like you know i mean lee could have done with some proper help with you know production and stuff uh, um, ongoing i mean we all try to ch- chip in at, at times but put in the expertise but wouldn't it be great if those people put all that energy into repro stuff you know did these sort of things you know help with molding help with tooling help with box you know printing for these kind of projects rather than wasting their time and antagonizing everybody with this repro nonsense
0: well, I mean, the, it, the trouble is the guys who are knocking these things out they're, they're they, they they're doing it because there's there's a there's a chunk of the community that don't particularly care about reproduction and buy it. You
2: know? Well, I, I, yeah, you know, I, I mean, with me, I don't see them as part of the community. If you're buying repro stuff, then yeah, but I mean, that's the only, re- it's- the only reason they're doing it is because if, if if people weren't buying oh, it, no, it maybe. I, I no, I understand, but wouldn't it be great if they stopped doing it and they yeah, and they did a positive thing? You, know, it's a bit yeah. like this, uh, you know. We've we've had these figures from from Kenner, you know, the totally pointless re-releases of. You know some of the figures. There's absolutely no point in doing them. And I, I was hoping we'd would have more of the original trilogy kind of obscure figures, which I think would have gone through the roof as much as these things have. You know, absolutely.
4: I mean, the, I mean, there I are, mean
2: releasing yeah, a bob effect. I've,
0: I've got the I've got the 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 Luke, but, you know, the, and they're still mint in the in the game the game boxes. But yeah, that'd be great if there was more of those.
2: Exactly. Guys. But I mean, I mean, again, they've. It was such a good launch. And then, they, you know, I thought, okay, yeah, do, your, do your, your few figures and then get it going. And then, you know, I mean, we, we've had the ones from Mandalorian. We've had the ones from everyone wan Kenobi. You know, that Darth Vader figure is absolutely brilliant. And I absolutely adore it. But I haven't bought any of the ones. I've not bought any from the Mandalorian from after the first wave. I kind of thought, oh, did I re- I'm not really sure if I like these. Even though they look great, I'm not sure if I've really got any kind of heart in them. But if they'd have released a bigs, or they released, you know, uh, some of these background characters, I think they would have sold.
4: There are guys out there that are filling that gap. Um, They're producing wonderful things. They're producing the the Sand Troopers and Uncle Owen and Arpuru, Rebel Fleet Troopers, Ula, you name it. You know, there are so many customs on the market now. But the the real fly in the ointment for me is, as you quite rightly say, there is overlap there are blurred lines between the customs which are fantastic and i support wholeheartedly and the repro which is a blight on the hobby and if the two could be separated then absolutely all for it but yeah uh, to be
2: separated and said that use that expertise for good rather than you know maybe have a a change a change of heart and go maybe i should make in you know the the guy makes the boxes and maybe we should make the boxes for these custom items make them look really really cool and something you can display and, and you know, and enjoy it again, rather than, you know, making the same thing over and over again that we've had 40 years ago, which doesn't need to be remade because there's still hundreds of them out there, most of them. That's what's so frustrating to see. But uh, I think, you know, it's, I mean, I'm not a massive custom fan. I'm not, you know, I love customs, but I'm not, you know, I don't buy any or anything. Um, Although there is, you know, there is a couple of figures I would definitely buy if they weren't being made by scumbags. Um, you know the slave Lair figure which I, I i'm really annoyed that that um there isn't a proper one i think know yeah, it's shocking that disney have gotten to this onto this high horse about about not making anyone in a in a, a dancing costume it's, yeah that's that's embarrassing if you ask me i mean i've not met anyone yet who's who's agreed that it's a great thing um to not have that
1: I want to ask about 3D printing. So we were promised, you know, that 3D printing was going to be the next big thing. And don't get us wrong, it has been huge. But I'm yet to see anything 3D printed that looks even close to being injection molded. Um, when do you think we're going to start to see advances in that kind of way? I think it's already, uh,
2: yeah, I, I, I think the, the 3D printers, it, yeah, because of the, the 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 technique of it, kind of like building up layers layers of vinyl, so I can't remember what the material is. I think you're always going to have to, you know, you're going to have to, like, um, you know, make some adjustments um, physically. But it, it seems to be, you know, I, I mean, I, I was taught, and there's a reason for this whole section, uh, we'll come to it a bit later on, but I was talking to Clint Garnis about his his process of making some figures. He's been, he'd been making some really nice custom figures, and he's just got hold of some silicone mould materials. And It's actually not that expensive. I, was, I might give it a go. I mean we're not talking hundreds and hundreds of pounds. we're talking a little bit of effort, get a few beta figures if you if you yeah want to make someone that that you could probably get away with um you know taking an old figure that's smashed pieces and missing an arm and 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 remoulding it basically as a another character and it's not actually that hard a process um so you can make a little run of figures you can probably get i don't know twenty or thirty figures out of these molds um and i think I think that's the better way i mean. We uh, we saw one of Clint's figures, this K3PO figure, and uh, I was staggered by how good it was. I've, I've not said it, I've not been a fan of repainting a figure, but to hold a remolded, you know, what's fetching a C3PO figure with a few adjustments, um, it, it was really it was beautiful. I've got to say it's one of my favourite figures I've had for a long time. You know, vintage E style figures. I was well impressed with how professional it was. You know and you know this this is this just made by someone who's effectively a hobbyist and i think that's the way forward rich i really do i reckon there'd be people making their own little molds in their sheds i'm churning out 30 or 40 figures and sticking them on a card i mean it, it's so much better than 3d printing i've not seen a 3d printed item yet i've been particularly that impressed with but then again i haven't seen tons
1: well, guys, I think um, McDonald's had to sign off now. So, Mark, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Some of the information that you brought has been absolutely insightful and would love to have you again on a future episode.
6: Oh, thank you, mate. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks, guys, for having me on. And uh, like I say, congratulations on 100 episodes.
1: Have a great Christmas, Mark, and we'll hear from you soon. See you
6: soon, guys. Cheers, Mark. It was brilliant. Cheers, Mark.
3: See you next time.
1: Yeah, take okay, care, mate. Right, um, Andy Norton. I'll come to you next. Um, do you have any customs in your collection, and what do you think of the the change in the custom acceptance over the last, you know, six or seven years?
3: Very good question, Richard. Do I have any customs in my collection? I'm not sure I do. I'm, I'm, I think I've got one coming soon, so that that will that will change. Uh, I'm sending it after Christmas because it's going to okay. get lost. <laughs> it's, uh, it's terrible actually I got a, uh, a non-received thing from uh, for a, a Chewbacca I sold on eBay today and then half an hour later it arrived at the guy's house so he, he withdrew it but that was, it's taken two weeks for uh, a second class recorder, yeah it's bad so wise anyway, but yeah sorry Richard um, do I only need customs I'm just looking round, I think the answer is no, I've got a load of tats, I've got bootlegs but I don't have any customs. I like them. In fact, there's the at the moment, there's the sort of Russian bootleg style things that are uh, on Facebook and they look lovely. And I, I was sorely tempted, but I thought, well, actually. Buying two of those, I could buy myself a nice Trilogo logo mint on card, and that's what I'm in this for. So, yeah, now I'm going to keep my money for another day
1: chris um i'm glad clint's name was mentioned there because clint to me is one of the stellar custom makers and this is going all the way back to celebration orlando where i saw some of his droids firsthand um and some of the some of the work that clint and i'm sure he doesn't work alone i'm sure there are others who have an input on this it is absolutely brilliant is it a A big thing in Canada, such as it is the UK, so obviously Mark Daniels makes these Paratois-style, you know, 159 um, stickers, and we've also got guys making customs. Are are there any signs of customs in Canada as big as this?
5: Well, I mean, you know, I think uh, our sort of insulated uh, vintage collecting community really uh, transcends borders in the sense that uh you you know you everyone everyone working on this stuff you guys kind of know them whether their names could come uh immediately to you or whether you need to be reminded of it um you know i've had the pleasure of going over to clint's place and seeing his uh workshop in action with an assembly line effectively of these sort of mold resin molded uh, droid parts and stuff and you know like i i i do like that kind, of, that side of it i think my favorite thing is the more um oddball sort of parody stuff like more in the style of what uh Suck lord used to be doing like i have a bunch of pieces from a guy called uh, acquired taste industries it, one is like a, a parody of captain kirk as a red snaggletooth in a in a captain Ch- just bonkers meme sort of stuff and i i like that side of it a little more than sort of trying to replicate what kenner would have done per se i I, the stuff that sort of stands out on its own um you may have heard of another guy called has no talent you can find this guy on instagram and he does like some like he started putting out uh droids and things that were vac metalized effectively because hasbro won't do it so you could get like a a retro-style dark trooper from The Mandalorian with a vac-metalized coating from this guy. I mean, he's probably got like 10,000 followers on Instagram or something like that, and he effectively does custom Kenner-style figures. So it's a a pretty big uh, scene if you think about how niche it is. It's like we're referencing vintage toys from Star Wars in its very specific style, and this guy's doing bootleg ones. And I think he even use as a factory overseas to produce them he's selling enough i don't think he's hand molding everything which is kind of crazy so i i like it i just like the stuff that sort of can't be mistaken for something vintage by, by the layman
1: i would love to go and see chris uh, clinton action i think uh you know i've, I've got i've got visions of i'm on a old milling machine or an old turning machine and uh, you know putting a lot of you know, hand effort into these rather than using um, modern tools. I think uh, he, he's definitely uh, somebody who's highly skilled in that area.
5: Yeah, you're not far off. It's it's quite a sight. Um, once in a while he shares uh, images of like a, a row of R2 heads on on sticks for mm-hmm. him to do the sort of chrome coating of paint, however he's doing that these days. But, uh, you know, um, it's, it's really a sight to see. We'll have to have a look for some photos he shared publicly and put them on our social media
1: along with this episode. Oh, absolutely. So, Pete, you, you said that you put this topic in for a reason. Do you want to go through the reason now?
2: Clinton's very kindly given us one of his custom figures to give away, and it is a, well, it's technically a vintage custom. So it's it is, um, it's a K-3PO figure. I remember him wandering around Hoth. I think he's, I think if you go into the um, expanded he's kind of some sort of general um, he's kind of quite an important uh droid uh, he's got far more responsibilities than the cpo you know? uh so he's given he's given us one to give away uh we thought well oh, it's the 100th show we'll give something away so uh it is an absolutely beautiful figure but we want you to do something well now normally we put these requests out and things don't happen but so what we want you to do to win this amazing figure because you know i mean not well, very few people are going to have one you might have uh I think some people have done sort of custom versions of this before. There are modern versions of it out there, but it is an absolute fantastic, it really is quality. I've like I said, not a massive um collective of customs, but this has blown me away. I was so enamoured with it. I think this isn't painted, this has been molded in white plastic. It's absolutely brilliant. And then a lot of a lot of adjustments made. And clinton's given me a, a nice little rundown of, of his process, which is absolutely fantastic. So we want you to send us in images of your collecting. Now I don't want the everyone to say, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I have got the biggest collection. I just want to see all sorts of collecting. Um, if we do our celebration booth in April, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, we want to display people's collections. We really want to get stuck in and celebrate collecting. Now, I want, I want pictures of all sorts of collecting. I want to see how you collect. I want to see pictures of, you know, little alcoves in your house where you put some Sphinx Star Wars in. Maybe it's in your kitchen. Maybe it's in your bathroom. Uh, maybe it's in the garage. Man cave shots. You know, it can be big. It can be small. I don't care. I just want to see, you know, you celebrate your Star Wars stuff. It can be a little bit of a collection. It could be a shelf. Um, it can be your fascination of Princess Leia items. It could be your electro set display. I just want to see you celebrate your collection. Uh, I don't care if it's muddled, whether it's dusty, whether it's like mine all over the shop and just rammed in to several shelves. I don't care. I'll put mine up there because it'd be funny. So I just want to see it. I want you to send us your picture. And the 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 one that really kind of like gets our juices flowing. And I said, and it's not all about size. So please don't think we're gonna go. Oh wow, well, he's only got four items. That might win it. Four items on a shelf might win it. You just don't know. I just want to see your passion. Okay. So just send it into us. Send it into our email address. Send it to our social media pages, tag us in on, on images. You must have them. But come on, let's let's get everyone's collection out. I want to see. I want to see. Yeah, we're about collecting. We've done a hundred episodes. We put a lot of effort in. As I said, we done 19 days of recording, <laughs> which we've released. So I want you to to give us a bit of payback and uh, show us show off your collecting. And if you've got a story to tell as well, maybe the story might help enhance it. And uh, did we help you on your collecting path? But yeah, just get involved. It's dead easy. Get that camera out. Everyone's got a camera. There's no excuse. Send us a picture of your collection.
1: Right then, Pete. So that was a great chance for somebody to win one of those. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, that's beautiful. Love, can't wait for the photographs to come in. So I'll even, do...
2: Rich, I'll even throw it a stand a little oh, tiny
1: stand absolutely I brilliant
2: I think it was one of yours but I'm throwing
1: yeah, it in yeah. probably it's topped <laughs> it now then so um, Pete mentioned our email address here so gmail.com if anybody wants to send us any photographs on um, email or indeed wants to give us any feedback you can also search A Vintage Rebellion on all social media platforms Instagram um, YouTube Facebook Twitter you name it we have um, profiles out there It's been a great show, this one. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, you know, different format. We will be back to our regular format for the January show. Interviews already in the can. Special thanks once again to Ron Salvatore for your interview and special thanks also to Mark Daniels for coming on this evening. Um, It's been a pleasure to talk to you and your insight is absolutely fascinating as ever. Right, guys, so January's not far away. Hopefully we'll get this episode recorded and out before Christmas Eve. There's going to be a lot of ifs and buts, but we're going to do our best. Um, so I'm going to get cracking on with the editing tomorrow, get as much as I can done, and hopefully by Wednesday morning, afternoon, Chris, I'll see how much I get done. And is it possible to get out on Christmas Eve if I hit that deadline for you? Oh, we're going to do it. We're gonna do it! Oh, you've got far more um, confidence than Pete and I ever have, but that, that sounds great. Right then, guys. So we'll be glad to see. Then we'll be back in January with our regular format with quizzes and interviews. The main interview has already been recorded, locked and loaded. So I'm looking forward to that one. So without much further from me, it's goodbye from Pete. Let's
2: look forward to another 19 days
1: of uh, of of recording. It's goodbye from Andy Preston. Merry
4: Christmas and a happy new year to all our listeners. May the force be with you it's goodbye from Jason
0: smith bye everyone and i hope santa brings you something nice and star
1: Warsy in in his christmas sack it's goodbye from manny norton goodbye
3: everyone uh, i just want to say as well thanks rich and pete you've been doing this for eight years do you realize that eight years that's that's a job so well done you two well done everyone for listening uh, enjoy us over your turkey on christmas
1: day well, it's our testimonial in two years' time, so looking forward to see what you guys do in vs for us then, aren't we, Pete?
3: Yeah, I want some nice gifts. Yeah, gonna get you a game of football against Mbappe and Messi.
5: <laughs> it's goodbye from Chris yes. Congratulations on a staggering 100 episodes, guys! Uh, your efforts towards the cause are much appreciated and
1: wishing everybody a safe and happy christmas or whatever holiday season you celebrate and a happy new year it's a later guys from me and remember only you can decide with star wars toys This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All of the original content of this podcast are the intellectual copyrights of the Vintage Rebellion. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swtvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't enjoy this podcast, tough.
6: Are Star Wars products going to have the durability of, say, that old favourite, the teddy bear?